Visualosaurus is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop up out of nowhere? Oh boy, do I. And you know who else does? The helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home and making off with your brand new flat screen TV that you got for Christmas or Hanukkah. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you this holiday season or anytime. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, the new action-adventure game from Respawn Entertainment. Taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope, players will wield a lightsaber, hone their force powers, and adventure across the galaxy in hopes of rebuilding the Jedi Order. Become a Jedi in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Available now on Xbox One, PS4, and PC. Rated 2 for G. Listen to Binge Mode! Sorry, I'm so sorry. I know Binge Mode contains adult content and spoilers. I got one! How many are left? Too many! And now Binge Mode. Feeling. The Force brought you together. We're not alone. Good people will fight if we lead them. People keep telling me they know me. No one does. But I do. It's been a long day on the secondary market trying to get a ticket to Palpatine's ceremony. I saw a lot of seats. You wouldn't believe how many Sith Eternals are also trying to get in here. And I don't I just don't want to sit in the nosebleeds. I really want to see what's going on. The Sith Eternal are always recruiting. (laughs) Welcome to Binge Mode, Star Wars. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! What a great website. <laughs> Joining me today. At last. Now that he's finished dramatically revealing his status as a spy, asking to be shot to protect his cover, and then immediately getting killed anyway. It's a very tough five <laughs> to eight minutes for our good friend. Fox Armitage Hawks, <laughs> a non-breathing fuckstick. Never quits. Who will quit. Never quits. Absolutely will not. It's Ringer Senior Creative. Your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. Mal, I am the spy. We don't have much time because now is the moment for binge mode Star Wars where we're exploring the wider Star Wars universe from the Skywalker saga films to the anthology films to the Mandalorian, plus numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away. 
Please make the journey to Pasana with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us those five-star ratings. Or we'll chase you down at the Festival of the Ancestors, which looks like a great time, by the way. Listen. Looks fantastic there. Once every 42 years. I wonder if there's any meta commentary at play there. I got to work on the line dancing, but I think it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans. Which is an excellent place to plot your own Jedi training course on Agent Kloss. And please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge one merch. You'll need it if you're light speed jumping. You hear that, Poe? Last time on Binge Mode, we explored The Mandalorian Chapter 7, The Reckoning. And before that, House of Version Shapes Star Wars, Episode 8, The Last Jedi. And today we're diving deep. Deep. <laughs> Into Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, the culmination of the sequel trilogy and Skywalker Saga. As always, spoiler warning, while The Rise of Skywalker will be today's primary focus, we will be going deep on details from this film and the entire Star Wars saga to date, taking official canon and legends hashtag not canon into account. So hop into Luke's X-Wing, transmit your signal to the Resistance, because it's time to head to Exegol. Mal, a thousand plot points live in you now. Sounds uncomfortable. Let's try to offer up a brief refresher (laughs) on what actually happens in The Rise of Skywalker by heading to a podcast studio far, far away and queuing up the opening crawl. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I'll be back! Unbelievable, this guy. (laughs) Our good friend, Sheev Palpatine, with no explanation whatsoever as to how, has resurfaced and put out an urgent press release promising revenge. Kylo Ren, now Supreme Leader of the First Order after Snoke's death in The Last Jedi, is threatened by the Emperor's return and tracks Palpy to Exegol using a Sith MacGuffin, excuse me, Wayfinder. Sheev reveals that he made Snoke as a proxy and has been controlling everything from behind the scenes while simultaneously building a massive fleet of powerful Sith Sard destroyers to set up the, not first, but final order. We're skipping all the steps. That's it. Between first and final. Forget the middle order. Forget about it. Forget any of that. Forget about it. Sheev tells Kylo that if he finds and kills Rey, those munitions, the might of a true empire, will be his. Kylo should be like, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm like up like 40 points in the in the third quarter. Yeah, he should be like, do I need it? Can you give me something to salve the loneliness in my heart? Yeah. What about that? Meanwhile, she's just doing pull my finger jokes. (laughs) This lack of fingers. (laughs) Pull my finger, Kylo. Oh, I don't have any. (laughs) The resistance learns from a first order Uh, spy that Palpy is. Yes, indeedy. Indeed. Back. Yeah, sure is. Rey, now undergoing Jedi training with Leia, uses the sacred Jedi text to direct her towards another MacGuffin or Sith Wayfinder that the late Luke Skywalker was trying to find, hmm. even though he supposedly never read the Jedi text. It's fine. Hmm. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> she, Poe, Finn, Chewbacca, BB-8, and C-3PO fly to the desert planet Pasana to begin their search where Luke's 
years earlier had run cold. Zero surprise that Lando ended up hanging out in the galaxy's version of Burning Man, by the way. Just in a fucking RV. <laughs> chilling. <laughs> like, chilling. Straight up chilling. <laughs> Kylo locates them by calling up Ray on force time and taking a necklace given to her by a Pasana local, a sweet little booby. That's sweet. Tests it, figures out where they are. He accompanies First Order troops to the planet, along with his Knights of Ren. As the heroes start to flee, they meet up with Lando, who leads them to the ship of a disappeared Sith loyalist Jedi hunter named Ochi, which I'm just going to say sounds friendly and fun. He's like the Indiana Jones of the Sith. <laughs> Bones. Bones. After falling into a devil's snare-esque trap in the sand, they find a Sith dagger with the location of the MacGuffin, like some artifact from the Goonies, inscribed on it. Helpful. And though C-3PO can read it, his programming prevents him from being able to translate the Sith markings aloud. After a run-in with an injured serpent-like beast that Ray heals Baby Yoda style, they climb aboard Ochi's ship and find a precious little droid with a squeaky wheel named Dio. Sweet little baby. Very taken by Dio. One of the highlights yeah. of the film for me. The First Order catches up to the group and takes Chewbacca as prisoner. Meanwhile, Ray senses Kylo's presence and takes down his ship by executing a pretty dope backward flip and lightsaber swoosh to sever one of his craft's wings. And when she then tries to prevent the transport ship that she thinks is holding Chewie from leaving the planet, showing a remarkable force power here, Kylo engages her in a little force tug of war. And in a true holy shit moment that a more courageous film would have stuck by. Ray loses control and unwittingly releases a massive bolt of force lightning, destroying the chip. No! For Chewbacca, who definitely died! He blew up! That happened! Despaired by the apparent death of Chewie, Ray and crew head to Kajibi, where they run into Pose presumed X, mm -hmm. Zori Bliss. Pause. We don't have a lot of time today, but let the record reflect. Yes. That if you cast Carrie Russell in a film, you have a I moral know. and civic obligation to show her hair. Putting a helmet on Carrie Russell in a film is a dereliction of duty. She's gorgeous. She's had my affections for <laughs> like 15 years now. And she's delightful. A delight. I agree with you. Thank you. She reveals Poe's past life as a spice runner. Let me tell you who else is running the spice. <laughs> it's Carrie Russell. <laughs> with her help, they get droid smith Babu Frick, oh, one of the breakout stars of this movie. The sensation, honestly. To reset C-3PO's memory, which will allow him to vocalize the Wayfinder's location. The Wayfinder, they learn, is on Kef Beer which is also a yogurt drink that's quite delicious. <gasps> the Ocean Moon of Endor. <sighs> Tough beat for 3PO there. Yeah, it can't take up to the actual Sanctuary Moon because, as we all know, destroyed. I mean, listen, the Ewoks at the end of the film are, are doing great, thriving amid <laughs> their <laughs> nuclear holocaust, apparently. <laughs> but before our heroes can fly there, Kylo Ren arrives on Kajimi along with, isn't that? Chewbacca's still oh living, thriving music? Thank God. As it turns out, our furry friend is alive and was in fact taken 
via another transport. It just landed in the same exact spot and flew off when Finn turned his back. That everyone somehow missed. Hey, Isaac, give us some reverse nose for Chewie, who's still kicking it, going strong. I love it. Thank what? God he's still alive. That was more of a Porg sound than a Chewie sound. Yeah. <laughs> the crew then sneaks onto Kylo's ship using Zori's First Order Captain's Medallion. Handy. They're just giving those out. They uh, separates <sighs> from the group to find Ochi's dagger while the men go to rescue Chewie. They manage to break Chewie loose, but hopeless without a woman's sensibilities, they get easily captured. So easily captured. And are captured. only able to survive because, surprise, General Armitage Hux <gasps> is the spy. Gotta say, one of the true laughs in the movie. I enjoyed that. I also found it delightful. <sighs> Meanwhile, Ray finds the dagger in Kylo's chambers. And instead of the next hour and a half of the movie just being Ray and Kylo in his chambers, we get the rest of the movie. Ray has a vision of Ochi, killing her parents with it. She then forced time duels with Kylo, thrillingly. And once he realizes her location, when Vader's mask, which he is obviously able to identify as his own possession, hits the floor, sees him in real life. And he then is tasked with dispensing the deeply distressing retcon reveal of Ray's parentage by disclosing that Ray is, in fact, Sheev Palpatine's granddaughter. Wow. Just awful. If you want to know where we stand on it, that's where we stand. Proceed accordingly or not. As it turns out, Ochi was sent by granddaddy Palpy, Pappy Van Palpy, to bring him Ray. But her parents hid her on Jakku and died for their courage. Give us some nose for Villanelle making her cameo in The Rise of Skywalker. Ray rejoins her now-escaped allies by jumping aboard the Millennium Falcon. They head to Kefbeer. Again, delicious <laughs> and good for you. Allegiant General Pride murders General Hux hmm. for treason. Hmm. Fairly. I mean, he is the spy. No for General Hux and our guy, Domhnall Gleeson. Yes. Who is having fun in this role, playing a multi-genocidal war criminal. Tough way to go. Who, to be fair, was brought up, indoctrinated as a child into this way of life. Look, at least he can rejoin his love, Phasma, in the great beyond. At least in yes. our head canon. On Kefbeer, they're led to the remains of the deuce. <laughs> there it is. Floating in water like the peskiest turd. <laughs> <laughs> By Janna, another deserted stormtrooper using a hidden device built into the knife's hilt, and somehow standing in precisely the location where that would work and also gazing upon ruins got lucky. that are on water but have not moved. Okay, Ray deduces the location of the Wayfinder. This blade tells. So Ochi has deduced that the Wayfinder is in the Emperor's throne room and the death's not even like a hard to think of place where it might be. <laughs> and he's like, and then he leaves it there? I have so many questions about this. So okay, anyway, as Ray finds the MacGuffin and briefly fights with her evil twin, Kylo Ren flies in. He destroys the Wayfinder and the duo duel on the ruins of the Deuce. Just as Kylo is about to strike Ray down, Leia uses all her remaining strength to call out to her son from across the galaxy. Using his given name, Ben, he drops his lightsaber. Ray picks it up and stabs him through the guts with it. 
Ray and Kylo snap to when they realize that Leia has died. No! 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 This one hurt. For our princess. For our general. For our leader. Truly devastating. Honestly, the double punch to the gut here of Leia and Morning Carrie Fisher. Genuinely painful. Yes. Ray, in a tender and lovely moment, one of the highlights of the film, force heals Kylo, takes his ship to Octo in order to exile herself in fear of following her grandfather's path to the dark side. There, she's met by Force Ghost Luke, looking his Jesus-y best. He looks and re- very Jesus. <laughs> he does. Does hair grow as a Force Ghost? I don't know, but it definitely did. His hair is so much longer. And he reveals that, one, are you sitting down for this, everybody? Because <laughs> this is wild. This is an all-timer. He and Leia knew that Ray was a Palpatine. Okay. <laughs> I just am literally stunned into silence anew. This is the same Luke who was like, Ben, how couldn't you tell me? This is the same guy, right? Okay, just making sure. And two, that Leia fully trained as a Jedi. This was cool to see but laid down her lightsaber. This was more puzzling here. After foreseeing her son's future, the death at the end of her Jedi arc, he then gives Rey Leia's lightsaber and lifts his old X-wing out of the water, closing that Dagobah, it's impossible, loop. She takes the ship and using the Wayfinder from Kylo's vessel, which it doesn't make sense that he had in his trunk because his ship had previously been destroyed, but Right. Whatever. Right. First of all, never took the Wayfinder onto his flagship. It had it in his sleeping quarters or wherever he keeps his trophies. He had it in the glove box of his ship. And then not <laughs> even his main ship, his backup ship. <laughs> it's just makes his sense. backup car. It honestly doesn't make sense. Because his first car get destroyed by Ray. I don't know what to tell that's, you. I don't. I don't. <laughs> and Ray broadcasting her signal to the resistance heads to Exegol. The Resistance follows Rey to Exegol, where they engage the Final Order's fleet of Star Destroyers, each one with the ability to destroy planets, as evidenced by the destruction of Kijimi. It was just the one city. They could have just, like, bombarded it. They didn't need to blow up the whole planet. But, I mean, that's fine. (laughs) Ultimately minor in the grand scheme of the weird things. A classic Star Wars morality test for you, the viewer, because the moment that you realize that Zori and Babu and the people you care about got off, you're like, all right, I'm good. What about everyone else? The one thing I like (laughs) about the Final Order fleet Star Destroyers is that when they engage that little gun on their belly, it looks like a dick pointing down. (laughs) Fire in red. It now looks like a dick that just becomes erect and hangs down. Oh that's my what God. The, that's what's happening. Now. There's a very dog-like quality because the way the, the red kind of pushes out, engorged like an engorged <laughs> member, like an engorged dog dick on the bottom of oh a God. slice of pizza. Oh my God! What a truly disturbing image. <laughs> Back on Kefbeer, Kylo, drenched, surely fending off the early onset of pneumonia, is visited by an embodiment of fan service. Excuse me, sorry, by his father, Han Solo. You know what? I reject the fan service label. I don't want to become a, a, the thing I hate here. I reject it as well. But this was tough. Yeah. 
<laughs> Honestly, you know, like we'll talk about this. I'm sure, well, of course, yes, podcast. But like some of the more blatant examples of fan service are kind of the things that I enjoyed most about this movie. Listen, we we had the pleasure of seeing this together. We saw it with our our colleague and friend Sean Fantasy, and I think we would all say that the absolute loudest the theater got was when Wedge Antilles came on screen. People were losing their great. minds. Chewie getting his medal. On and on the list goes. In a moment, signifying Kylo's turn to the light, our dude, Ben, embraces his given name, throws away his angry, unstable red lightsaber, and leaves to follow Rey in a dope new athleisure outfit looking like our producer Ice Lee out there in the black joggers, the black crew neck, Rocking the dope kicks, getting that sponsorship from Lululemon, heading to Exegol, gonna die in comfort. Spoiler. It looks great. I love it. Ray finally meets at last. Good. Good, good. <laughs> Grandpa Shivi. Oh, God. Give your grandfather a kiss. <laughs> I don't want to. You're a disgusting, festering <laughs> zombie attached to tubes of liquid in a metal crane. Who reveals <laughs> that he doesn't want her dead, but rather mm. yeah. that she, this is his plot, mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. will kill him, yeah. thus drawing generations of past Sith into her Kay. and becoming a new evil empress Kay. possessed by the psyche and energy of Sheep Palpatine. Okay. She draws a lightsaber, but instead of striking Granddad down, because that would play right into his hands. That's his plan. Never give him what I'm they want. I'm not going to do that. No. She force time passes it to Ben, who is now also on Exegol, and he fights the Knights of Ren and wins. I got to say, that was a great moment. Her passing the was saber cool. was electric. That was cool. The look on his face when he looks at her, it's wonderful. But Ben's arrival changes Sheev's plans again. He's got to call yet another audible. I got to be honest. You're sitting there waiting for 31 years, and then your plan changes this many times in the course of two hours and 20 minutes. It's got to be annoying. <laughs> you get that close, and you just got to go with it, you know? He realizes that Ray and Ben form a dyad mm -hmm. in the Force. Sure. What's that, you ask? Don't worry about it. Look at the pretty colors. Don't worry about it right now. Or later. <laughs> it's so powerful that he can drain their strength and use it to restore himself and his poor little fingers. Gnarled. Why does he look worse nubs. after draining their energy in the face? I don't know. He basically chose to look like a scrotum again. Very strange. Gotta say. He did. Very he odd. Did. Outside, our brave resistance fighters are getting their ass absolutely handed to them. Without the power, the bodies, to combat all of these Sith Star Destroyers. But is that Lindo Calrissian's music? Da, 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 da. Is that the Millennium Falcon's music? Da, 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 da. From all across the galaxy, Lando returns with a massive fleet of people. One of the nice moments, actually, is when Pride asks, oh, where did they get all these ships? They, from what? They don't have a navy. And the other dude says, right. they're just people. I, I actually loved that and that message. I wish there were more moments like that in the film. That was, for me, maybe the most thrilling moment was seeing all the ships, all the different ships when they were part of the galaxy. Very I cool. Like very cool. It's, again, a blatant endgame comp, but it was still very cool. It was thrilling. You cheered. You can't help but cheer. On your left, Cap. Yep. <laughs> all is saved. Except this triumphant moment is short-lived because Palpy uses his newly regained 
unlimited power <laughs> to force lightning the shit out of the resistance fighters. Harrowing image. All seems lost after she tosses Ben into a pit. But that's literally never worked before. <laughs> Should he finish him off? Nah, just throw him in there and don't even think twice about it. If anyone should know that falling know. down to a shaft does not result in death, it is Sheev fucking Palpatine. No one has ever died in such a manner in Star Wars. My goodness. But Ray hears the beckoning of the Jedi who came before her and rises. Be with me. Grampy Sheev Be unleashes force lightning on her now, but she deflects it using both Leia and Luke's lightsabers. Mm-hmm. Overwhelmed. From shooting himself in the face with his own lightning. Why doesn't he just stop (laughs) shooting himself in the face? I don't know. (laughs) Listen, you only have one signature move. I have a a potential theory on this later, which I will just just be distressed to share. But it's very confounding. Palpatine finally perishes. No! (laughs) Good, good, good. I would like the most questioning. No? Here, because he wasn't there the first time, so you can't convince me he's dead now. Sadly, so does Rey, who falls as the strength leaves her body. But then, Ben Solo himself, the blue light bathed in his face. Our Benny, still alive, because again, nobody dies from falling down holes or shafts in Star Wars. Never happened. Climbs out of the pit pulls himself limping over to Ray's corpse, and he cradles her in his arms. Very touching moment. She looks like a tiny doll in his hands and lap. She really does. It's like, oh my God, he's huge. She's tiny. And he resurrects her using his force healing powers, the powers that she showed him. She rises, and they kiss, and we see Ben Solo smile for the first time. It is a First time ever. touching moment. And then, having used all of his life energy to revive Ray, Ben dies and fades away. Give us those no's! Ben no! Solo! No's for all the Raylos. No's for everyone hoping that anyone in Star Wars could ever find love and be happy. The Resistance destroys the remaining Final Order forces, including Allegiant General Pride. Tough beat for Sorry, him. buddy. <laughs> tough, tough beat. No, no for those guys, no, because we didn't need it. They just, absolutely where did they even not. come from? Come on. The galaxy celebrates. Sometime later, Ray travels to Tatooine to visit Luke's childhood home, where thankfully the burn charred bodies have long since been removed. She buries the Skywalker twins' lightsabers. Guess can't put Leia's on Alderaan anymore, so okay. Yeah. She then activates her new yellow-bladed lightsaber, a scintillating moment. And then a Tatooine local, always cruising the real estate, drops by yeah. and asks Ray her name. And as Luke and Leia's force ghosts appear, Ray, smiling, says her new name aloud. Ray Skywalker. You know what I say? Fucking own it. Be like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm Sheev's granddaughter, and you know what? He was a dick, but I'm not. (laughs) It's good. Stop lying to the galaxy. That's what I say. Jason? Yes. You will take your revenge, and with a stroke of your saber, binge mode is reborn. No, I won't, because I'm going to 
pass it to my friend. <laughs> and that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings. Boy, do we have a lot of them today. Use the force. The defining theme of this episode is resurrection. Note, we will once again be keeping it more casual, free-flowing, conversational today. We are still processing this film, obviously. And, you know, typically when we do these pods, we can have direct access to the source material, return to it time and time again as often as we need. You know, we watch the movie more than once, and that's all we have to go on. So we will return to this. This will not be the last time we talk about it. But here are still in process, possibly evolving, but possibly eternal thoughts. Let's start with the big picture as we usually do. Who made this movie? J.J. Abrams called in in the seventh inning of this trilogy back again after The Force Awakens to direct. He was joined by Chris Terrio as co-screenwriter. Colin Trevorrow had previously been removed from the project after submitting an early draft of a script. He left the project in 2017. In a December Gizmodo interview, Kathleen Kennedy said something about the directing change that now feels notable. Quote, Colin was at a huge disadvantage not having been a part of The Force Awakens and a part of those early conversations because we had a general sense of where the story was going. (coughs) (coughs) Oh, sorry. I had something caught in my throat. Were the retcons stuck in your throat? No. It was only in the development that we were looking at a first draft and realizing that it was perhaps heading in a direction that many of us didn't feel was really quite where we wanted to go. Now, this was, as we've outlined across the pod, not the only directing shakeup in the Disney-owned era of Star Wars. And whether the above explanation is the entire truth or the response to the Book of Henry, which was released shortly before Trevor Rose ouster, who knows? The company line now is that being there from being having a sense of the through line was key, which begs plenty of follow-up questions about how we wind up here if there was, in fact, right. such an overarching structure, which will be one of the primary focuses, of course, of today's discussion. No doubt. So how's the movie doing so far? Well, it's obviously only been out for a few days, but the opening weekend gross was $177 million domestically and $376 million globally, which in a vacuum probably seems really good. And even contextually in the wider film landscape is quite good. It's the third best December opening of all time and the 12th best December opening weekend overall domestically. But here's the rub. The two higher domestic weekends, the prior two Skywalker films, which ranked third and fourth all time. The Force Awakens checked in at $250 million in its opening weekend and The Last Jedi checked in at $220 million opening weekend gross. So, relative to the other movies in this trilogy, which is, of course, what this will be measured against, Rise of Skywalker is so far a distant runner-up. Has the narrative around the film hurt the box office? Well, we will, again, as Jason said, talk about the narrative throughout our discussion today. But here's just a little snapshot of the response to the film so far and some of the dominant discussion points around it. What's the old Rotten Tomatoes website have to say? Well, currently we are looking at 56% fresh from critics. That's rotten, folks. Yikes. That is rotten. 86% from fans, so that is a significant gap in Mm -hmm. difference. Only The Phantom Menace, 53%, has a lower critic score. 
Also, the first time a movie directed by J.J. Abrams has dipped below 70% amongst critics. What about the critics themselves? Friend of the Ringer, Amy Nicholson, summed it up well for Film Week. Quote, everything in this franchise feels like a take back. Yes. I mean, it really does. It really just undoes a lot of things from the second installment of this trilogy. Our homie Richard Brody for the New York (laughs) quote. It's a drama crafted with robotic insularity for the consumption of viewers being rendered robotic at each moment of the soullessly uniform <laughs> spectacle. Just iconic shit from Richard Brody there. Wow. Oh, my God. And then what about Darren Franich? I love, love this line from Darren. This is exactly right. Quote, Rise of Skywalker isn't an ending, a sequel, a reboot, or a remix. It's a zombie. That is exactly right. And that obviously taps into our idea today. What about the fans? Well, deeply divided. Once again, this is becoming something of a pattern. And there are very vocal camps on each side. Many who feel that this has restored their vision of what Star Wars is supposed to be. And then many who feel really let down by it, even betrayed by it. Specifically by the rewinding of the many courageous prior steps and choosing these resolutions instead. So some of the, and this is just some of them, but some of the the dominant instant narratives that have sprung up in the wake of the film, and I think one of the things that was fascinating about the release of this movie is that this was true before it was even out in mass release, between the, the, the critical response and deluge of negative reviews and also the number of people who seem to have gotten into some sort of screening or have early access to the film, the level of conversation around it was the volume was so high and the negativity was severe before most people even saw it. One of the critiques, I think quite a fair one, too convoluted, too fast-paced. The first hour is breakneck and completely overwhelming. And basically that the film is just confusing that there's too much plot and not enough room to breathe and then crucially not enough explanation of that plot not enough actual lore building world building and information to justify the sheer girth of what's in here i will say that when i saw it a second time this was the one factor that improved for me i was not as jarred and overwhelmed by the clip at which the film operated when I saw it for the first time. And, you know, candidly, I'm not sure how much of this is just the anxiety that comes from knowing we're going to have to talk about it and, you know, trying to digest and process it and worrying that, oh, my God, I've been thinking about the word Wayfinder for 20 minutes to make sure I remembered it. What were those six planets that I just missed? Yeah. can be quite an overwhelming experience. And that improved on second viewing for me. The rest of these things didn't. So broadly, the next narrative and critique is that the sequel trilogy just lacks a cohesive vision, that where we ended up, it's hard to argue anything else. And I think what's interesting about this one is this is a point that most people agree on, because whether you stand for Last Jedi or you stand for this, you're going to think this in some way. People will deny this, and they are, but they're saying that this is not the case. In a December interview with Gizmodo, Kathleen Kennedy said, quote, well, first of all, when we sat down to do Force Awakens, we spent a great deal of time working out all three movies and doing a real deep dive on the previous six and talking about that, understanding the mythology that George had created, bringing in people who had worked on those films, been a part of Lucasfilm. She added, quote, so you say cemented. I don't think anything's ever cemented with Star Wars. It can't be. It's so rich with possibility that you don't want to reach a point where you think you've made a decision and then not leave yourself open to exploring other possibilities and other considerations. And when you get a lot of smart people in the room who are all Star Wars fans, 
that's never going to stop. So I, it's interesting because she immediately contradicts the thing that she basically just said. It's on the one hand, there's an overarching structure. We talked about stuff that we were going to do and and had all these ideas that would run through all three movies. And the other hand, basically, you get a lot of Star Wars heads in a room, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, a lot of ideas start flying around, and then all of a sudden, you start going, oh, then maybe we do change course. Right. So I think that this gets to something we talked about a bit. I think in our last Jedi pod, when we noted that an evolving story was also part of the original trilogy, Darth Vader was not supposed to be Luke's father from the beginning. Luke and Leia were not siblings from the beginning. Right. When you're making something like this, and especially when it becomes a machine that operates at the scale that Star Wars does, of course, you're going to be discovering a bit as you go along. Of course, that's fine. I think that there is an absolute chasm between acknowledging that reality and getting what we got here. Because something like Palpatine, that to me becomes plot and just storytelling mechanics as much as anything. But then when you connect it to who Ray is, the real sin yeah. comes in with thematic choices and character arcs and the actual impact of what the message of this trilogy was supposed to be. You know, I could stomach things popping up that seem like out of left field or even even appreciate and understand why the pull of nostalgia was always going to be a little bit too great for this movie to escape from. Like, the nostalgia factor is Ray reaching up at that transport. You can't quite escape it. But the fundamental, this is where we landed on what matters questions in this trilogy just, I don't think, landed where I thought they were going to go and wanted to go. And listen, it is not about what I want. I am fully aware of that. And I think that one of the, we talked about this a lot with Game of Thrones, one of the challenges of modern day fandom is that because we are all so immersed in these stories Mm -hmm. and so engaged with the communities around them, we feel a real ownership over what they are. And I think it's important to be mindful of, if, for example, you like us loved Last Jedi and we're, we're pretty like heartbroken by some of the toxicity that sprung up in the wake of that, it's really important to not just go ahead and do the same thing in reverse. So if you loved this movie, I am not here to tell you that you're wrong. It just wasn't for me. And I'm wondering if I will be able to talk myself into it more over time. There were things about it I loved, certain moments, certain choices, but overall, I just kind of can't talk myself into a handful of the most important decisions. I'm going to try. I'm just not sure if I'm going to be able to. You know, for me, it's just that the movie seems like such a conscious erasure. Yes. So that that's that's our next narrative. Why don't you run us through that? The movie basically playing as a fuck you to The Last Jedi. If The Last Jedi's theme was kill the past, mm-hmm. Rise's theme is this is a ghost story. J.J. Yes. Abrams' vision trumped Ryan Johnson's and that manifested in a story anchored in the past and in strict adherence to convention rather than what we certainly feel to be some of the more courageous leaps forward that honor the heart of mm-hmm. fantasy storytelling. It's no better or worse example than Ray's parentage reveal, though many choices fit into this, all of which we'll explore. I think Ray's parentage reveal and Palpatine in general, mm-hmm. that's the core of it. Yes. If those things had been done well and everything else was the same, I'd be like, fine, that was pretty fun. you yeah. know. But I, I think those are the things that we're kind of essential for my, at least yes. for my enjoyment of this movie. I strongly agree. 
There are even some lines in the film that play as direct FUs to The Last Jedi. And I think when you take those things, and, and we'll mention them in a second. I can't get over this. I think when you take this. those things with the pre-release kind of drumbeat of interviews and comments. Mm, I'm point. thinking of the uh, yeah. big story that came out in the New York Times the weekend before the movie was released. I think when you put all that together, it feels so unnecessarily antagonistic to a film in its own series. So let me ask your, your opinion on this. And sure, obviously sure. We, we don't know the answer to this. But do you think that what now seems like concerted strategy to distance Star Wars from The Last Jedi and go all in on supporting this movie indicated that they knew people weren't going to like it because it is so aggressive and organized that I, I almost don't know how else to process it. Especially because when you factor in that Kathleen Kennedy and other people in Lucasfilm really, really went out of their way to stand by Last Jedi for so long. Like a switch flipped here. Listen, from the very beginning... Kathleen Kennedy and Disney have been extremely concerned. I guess concern might be too strong, but like very attentive about the numbers and about how much money is being spent and about Mm -hmm. the reception that these movies are getting. Right. And I think that there's probably a certain strain of Disney exec that looked at The Last Jedi and said, well, this made less money than The Force Awakens. And that is a quantification of the things that went wrong with The Last Jedi, and therefore we should reverse course and try and get those people back and make that money back. And then I think the people who make movies are not dumb. Bad movies happen, but they're not stupid. When they get this movie back before anybody's seen it and they're cutting it together, I think you look at it and you know if it's good or not. Right. These are experienced people. You know, J.J. Abrams not a dummy. He's going to look at the movie and go, okay. And I think at that point, I feel like they felt like and again, this is a theory, let's double down, okay? Yeah. Let's really signal to people strongly, the people, the subset of of Star Wars fans that felt right. very put off by The Last Jedi. Let's signal as strongly as we can that this is the anti that movie and try and get those people back. Yes. It feels like that's the only explanation to me. What do you think? I mean, I agree, and I think a lot of the quotes... And the run-up to the film about anticipating the response almost had, and again, you know, some of this, you project your own feelings and anxiety about it onto it. But that's what it is. Yeah, there seemed to be, I don't know, almost like a pleading quality. Like, we really hope people like this. We want to make something that the fans like. And then the question is, well, what do we all mean by the fans? Because I think one of the things that this last few years of Star Wars has clarified painfully clearly is that not everybody wants the same thing from the story. And in many ways, that's okay and great. You know, the fact that we all relate to stories in different ways is part of what makes them special and personal and have such a lasting impact on our lives. The problem, of course, becomes when that toxicity creeps into the discourse. And then, you know, to your point about how could comments like this make it through, well, look at some of the lines that are in the actual movie. Yeah. So about those lines, uh, Luke at one point says, quote, a Jedi's weapon deserves more respect to Rey when she arrives on Octo and tries to toss the saber over the edge, a mirror of the thing that Luke does at the beginning of The Last mm-hmm. Jedi. And this time Luke catches the blade. This one I, I felt kind of as like maybe a winking joke to something that he did. Mm-hmm. Although 
you certainly could perceive this as a more pointed critique of the earlier film. I think it's this next quote that <laughs> yeah. I was like, man, I can't believe that one. I know. So the resistance is all meeting at their base and someone suggests, quote, we need to pull some holder maneuvers, do some real damage. And then the response is, quote, come on, that move is one in a million, which seemed like a stunningly direct acknowledgement of the reaction of a certain contingent of fans that was mm-hmm. quite angry in the wake of The Last Jedi yeah. about this potentially canon wrecking maneuver. Right. I gasped a little bit at that one. Me too. Here's my thing on this. Yeah. Shocking regardless. You cannot do this in a movie where you invent light speed skipping. Yeah, you can. You just can't. Like, if you're yeah. going to do something that flies in the face of decades of understanding of how our particular practice works, you know, even Han, the biggest risk-taking rogue in the entire galaxy, wouldn't jump into hyperspace without precise calculations, then right. that is your prerogative. Part of what's cool about the story, as we've talked about time and time again, and as George Lucas and other people have acknowledged, Ryan Johnson acknowledged, is that the force evolves. The decisions the characters right. make evolves. Their understanding of the world in which they exist evolves. That's fine. Change and progress are good things. But don't adjust canon and then yeah. basically mock the fact that the prior film did that in the maybe most emblematic. I mean, there were a handful of things in that movie, obviously, that brought out the the rage and the passion on both sides. And we talked about that at length in our last Jedi episode. But Holdo just felt like such a microcosm of the entire debate. And so that is deliberate, that line. I just don't know how you could perceive it in any other way. And so I'm sure that there are people out there who are absolutely delighted by it. And that's not how plenty of other people yeah, feel. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> It's honestly weird, like the Luke thing, I mean, we talked about this in The Last Jedi, but I I feel like it's a point worth raising again, is that I think a significant amount of the negativity for a lot of fans who felt that way, who felt negatively towards The Last Jedi, was the depiction of Luke and the Mm -hmm. fact that, oh, Luke would never, Luke would never treat like this. He would never surrender like this. He would never just give up the fight. At the same time, again, The Force Awakens, the crawl opens with Luke Skywalker has vanished. Right. So- that is the movie that established that Luke had retreated from the scene, not Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. What is Ryan Johnson and The Last Jedi supposed to do at that point? It's been established that he retreated into isolation. So why would he do right. that? Because he's brave and can't wait to fight the resistance? Like, that's not the movie that right. made Luke someone who was had retreated to a hideaway to figure things out. I think that that is a crucial point. And I think it is, again, very representative of the larger dilemma here. And we are just as guilty of this as anyone. No matter which side of this you're on, you probably are doing this. We kind of are all trying to have it both ways a little bit. You know, for sure, the things that you appreciate and admire are sanctioned in your mind. And the things that grate you in some way, oh, well, how come you're not respecting what came before? Or how come you're not thinking about the future when you could five minutes later, and I'm sure we'll have moments in this very podcast where we do this, okay, well, let's stop being tethered to the past and then well, where's the respect for this tradition? I mean, we we all fall into these patterns and these tendencies. And I think, again, that one of the things that's so meaningful about being a fan of fantasy stories is that you you have a community that allows you to process those thoughts and those feelings and people right. who want to share this with you and explore those things together and find a way to clarity together. And the fact that it feels like we're losing that specifically is one of the great tragedies. I think also probably you're, I assume you feel the same way too. There's just like a little bit of 
I can't believe we're doing this again. Game of Thrones just ended where it's just like, is this what pop culture fandom is now? And that is genuinely like, I don't I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but that that is like upsetting to me. And it makes me sad because this is a huge part of my life and something that I cherish. And sharing this stuff with you, sharing it with our listeners, like, I don't want to do a three-hour podcast about why we hated something. You know, that's right. not what this is supposed to be. And I don't mean to be like, poor me, whatever. We get to talk about fucking Star Wars and get paid for it. Our lives are incredible. Like, we're really lucky. That's not what I mean. It's just the joy comes from celebrating something that we love. Yeah. Not from constantly being at war with each other. It just feels like we're up there above Exegol right now, you know? In an interview with Vanity Fair's Anthony Bresdikin, the first screaming of Rise of Skywalker, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences on Friday, J.J. Abrams addressed and dismissed the Last Jedi Rise of Skywalker in-house tension, saying, quote, we had conversations with Ryan at the beginning. It's been nothing but collaborative. The perspective that, at least personally, I got from stepping away from it and seeing what Ryan did strangely gave us opportunities that would never have been there because, of course, he made choices no one else would have made. However, he did acknowledge that it's revealed a chasm between mm-hmm. fans, basically saying that there's no way to please everyone. Quote, I would say that they're right. The people who love it more than anything are also right. Mm-hmm. His acknowledgement of the critics, especially this close on the heels of the film's release, has been, I think, very notable and interesting. Maybe revealing that there was just no choice, but I think also showing a willingness to engage in the discussion, which is, I, I respect. Which is positive. Yes. I respect that, too. I think when a story gets this big, of course, you can't please everyone. I think that's absolutely the case. That said, I think you get in more trouble when you try Mm -hmm. to please people in a very specific way, which is by contravening certain decisions that you've made in order to somehow get people back on the bus. And listen, it's not my money. I didn't pay four (laughs) plus billion for Star Wars. I'm not spending X hundreds of millions to make a movie. So it's very easy for me to say stuff like this when I'm not looking for a return on my investment. But I think that at the end of the day, you've got to at some point stay true to some kind of artistic vision because otherwise, with a story like this, you're just kind of going to incentivize the loudest voices in the room to be even louder. Yes. And I think that that is not a place that anyone wants to be. That is a great point. So what about the people who love the movie? Well, there are a couple different lines of thought. One of them is just, hey, the prequels were worse, which, you know, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> or, they were worse. They were worse. Sith is but good. But also, like, strangely but... beloved in a weird way. So I think that will happen with this, you know? Yeah, so that gets into the, the next argument, which is basically... This was tremendously fun to watch and it brought the people who liked it a lot of joy and that maybe more people will come to appreciate it over time. You know, not everything in the immediate moment of its arrival is appreciated the way that it ultimately will be over time. And, you know, the whole Ringer staff has been talking about The Rise of Skywalker for days and we were chatting with one of our colleagues, Matt James, a designer here at The Ringer and a really thoughtful person who... Shared, I think, a very persuasive opinion and who liked the movie a lot. And he basically said, I think it'll be viewed a lot more positively from the future fans who will see this movie outside of the present day J.J. Ryan Wars. Maybe I'm not demanding enough from the series, but ultimately all I want out of a Star Wars movie is just to be transported into that universe for a while, to hang out with some good old fictional friends. The bad things in this movie didn't eclipse my enjoyment of that. And you know what? 
that's not how I feel, but that makes sense to me. That is absolutely 100% valid, and I get it. And the other thing that he said that I thought stuck was the kids in my screening absolutely loved it. That's ultimately what I want out of Star Wars as an adult. I just want to see the next generation of Star Wars fan having as much fun as I did when I was their age. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because I think Star Wars, in a really weird way, you know, it's like that hard sci-fi, soft sci-fi uh-huh. tension again. couple of great moments for that in this movie. Absolutely. You know, kind of like the closer you pay attention to it, the more you want to dive into it, the more it, it kicks you in the teeth a little bit. Yeah. And I think that that is a very surface reading of, like, let's have fun. This is a ride reading of Star Wars. And this movie is absolutely valid. I mean, it's not the way I process stories right. where I want to like dive fully in and submerge myself a half a mile down, yes. but it's absolutely valid. Yeah, totally. Like not everybody watches movies or consumes stories in the same way. And that right. is okay. And we, we do just want to emphasize that one more time. You know, we love yeah. The Last Jedi. We struggled with many of the character and story and thematic choices in this movie. But it is okay to disagree. It's not about convincing absolutely. you all to agree with us. Or about you telling us we're wrong. You know, it is about hoping that we can push forward through the toxicity and that we can all get back to a place where we're not looking at this thing that's supposed to unite us and wondering why it tore us apart. You know, if your feelings feel real to you, then they're real. Please treat other people with respect and remember that at the end of the day, uniting and loving Star Wars is a a thing that we ultimately can all share and maybe not how we love it or what we want to get from the experience. But let's just show each other the decency to celebrate or grieve or process it in the way that we all see fit. Your focus determines your reality, folks. All right, let's talk about the actual movie. Let's start with Palpatine. The Ray is a Palpatine reveal. Raylo, Kylo's redemption, Ray's new name, a connection to the Jedi past, all of it. Yeah. We regrettably must start with Palpatine himself, who obviously (laughs) hangs over this entire movie, like literally hangs over it, Jason, like a rotting meat puppet from a Sith crane. Imagine the dude who has to like work on Palpy's crane. (laughs) I just, you know, there were a lot of fluids going into him. I'm wondering what the setup is for the fluids coming out of him. There was a lot of fluids. Yeah, man. It's like, Someone take me off my crane. I have to take a shit. <laughs> or does the crane just crane him over to the... Oh, yeah. You got to think it's like... the outhouse or whatever? Basically, the exegol Sith Eternal version of just having your whole house as like a smart house, you know? Yeah. You tap something in on the iPad. You zip where you need to. He just sleeps in the arena? I don't Hangs know. out in the arena all the time? I mean, does no. he even need sleep? Who can say? I guess not. That's true. <sighs> We obviously knew that Palpatine was going to be in this movie because his presence in the trailers and the posters, the general marketing of the film meant that it was not going to be a surprise, obviously. But we did think that there would be buildup to his reveal within the film, to other characters realizing it. And it is instead literally the premise of the movie. The film begins with his return. The crawl opens with the dead speak. On Fortnite, exclusively on Fortnite. (laughs) Yes, stay tuned for more on that in the eight. It's almost impossible to conceive of a more direct walking back of the subversive storytelling from the prior film than, again, you know how that one was about killing the past. Well, we just went ahead and resurrected it. 
the choice to make Palpatine the primary villain in this film and retcon him into having been the puppeteer of everything that has happened throughout this trilogy exemplifies this film's need to almost obsessively connect back mm-hmm. to the DNA of the original trilogy films, its ideas, its themes, its character beats even. Yes. And as a result, taps into the question of storytelling cohesion across the films, across the series. The people who made this movie seem to view Palpatine's return less as a resurrection and more of a Thanos-esque inevitability. In the aforementioned interview with Gizmodo, Star Wars producer Michelle Rejwan said, quote, I think there was a feeling of inevitability that Palpatine had been part of all three, and in the biggest picture of nine movies, he has been there from the very beginning. Adding, I think it definitely feels as though it is in the DNA of the nine. Okay. (laughs) And it felt appropriate to have his presence be in this movie. I don't know. You call me crazy, but like, if a character very explicitly dies, that kind of (laughs) takes him off the board as being part of the DNA of the following three movies. We're going to get into a lot about the lack of explanation. He died and exploded. Yes, for how he returned and how you can maybe try to walk your way to clarity there. But I don't think there's a way to sell the fact that his presence was in the prior two films. That in- That's another thing. He appears in The Return of the Jedi. That's it. And is mentioned, well, he appears as a hologram in Empire Strikes Back, but he's like mentioned, but he's like not in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got like six minutes of screen time. <laughs> the prequels are where he thrives. Absolutely. J.J. Abrams said something kind of similar to Uproxx last month, quote, well, when you look at this as nine chapters of a story, perhaps the weirder thing would be if Palpatine didn't return. Okay. You just look at what he talks about, who he is, how important he is, what the story is. Strangely, his absence entirely from the third trilogy would be conspicuous. It would be very weird. Can I just say one thing? Does this mean that you have to make Palpatine the villain of every Star Wars movie? Is that what you're saying to me? The next three movies, whoever makes them, Ryan Johnson, whoever, Palpatine is the villain. Is that what you're telling me? I mean, it's an interesting question. I'm sure the response would be some version of, no, well, this is about the Skywalker saga, and the Skywalker saga has concluded, at which point we would then respond, well, then why are the last words of the film Ray Skywalker? It's a knot of logic that every time you untie, you realize you've created another knot somewhere else. And, you know, that's obviously like a, a pretty wild thing to say about a character who fell down a reactor shaft in Return of the Jedi and then exploded. You know, it's not like Maul where you just see him drifting away. Right, it goes away. There was a very explicit explosion of blue-purple energy that came from his dying body. Yes. So, you know, from our perspective, we just don't need Chief Palpatine, who, again, we love don't need him in this film. We don't need the meta insinuation that the past weight of Star Wars has hung over this trilogy literalized quite that textually. But, but, we're not the ones making the movies. And if the people who are want to bring him back, okay, hint at his return sooner, explicitly. Thank you. So that the trail is established. Prepare us for this outcome in the main movies, not just by relying on fans' knowledge of Palpatine's obsessive pursuit of immortality elsewhere in the canon and in Legends. And crucially, crucially, if you are going to do this, explain how he is here. Yeah. This is like the, again, not to do this again, but this is kind of like the Daenerys Targaryen 
final season of Game of Thrones thing. It's like, this could have, it's not what I would have chosen, but it could have been cool if it would have been laid out a little bit more logically, if there would have been hints seeded along the way, if it wouldn't just appear out of left field. And then, as you said, you're not going to tell me how, how this happens? Right. So how is Chief Palpatine, Darth Sidious, the Emperor of the Fallen Galactic Empire and leader of the Sith, here in the Flash-ish, Flash-ish, in the year 35 ABY, 31 years after he, we thought, perished. That is a tremendously important question. It's actually annoying that we have to talk about this before what happens to Rey and Kylo, but that's how much it hangs over the outcome here. And amazingly, it's not a question that we can confidently answer. And we assure you we have yeah. tried. We can gather the evidence. We can call upon our pre-existing knowledge of Sheev's contingency plan and pursuit of immortality. We can infer. But we cannot say for sure because the movie, quite simply, does not tell us. Yeah, I find that extremely disconcerting considering this is the last of this current trilogy. Yes. And... I love Clone Wars. I love Rebels. I love all the ancillary material. But I think if you're depending on those things to tell the bulk of your story, mm-hmm. then you're not telling your story well. And not only that, but the characters themselves kind of fail yeah. to ask questions about Sheev's return or show anything beyond the most fleeting curiosity about how this has happened. Yeah, this bugs me. In fact, their dialogue almost plays as the films acknowledge it that it doesn't care to explain to us how this has gone on. Poe tells the resistance base, quote, somehow Palpatine returned. Somehow. That's an amazing thing. (laughs) And then Rose's, Kurt, wait, do we believe this, is the most fleeting recognition that this should be treated with incredulity in the first place. Mm -hmm. But when we move beyond it in a, blink of an eye as Dominic Monaghan's Beaumont says quote dark science cloning secrets only the Sith knew or what do we just throw in shit against the wall to see if something happens like well kind of because yeah (laughs) that line is ultimately the only guess that we get in the entire film and a guess from someone outside of his camp or zone of awareness does not count as an answer And again, it's not even a guess. It's like four different guesses. Yeah, it's like one of these will be right. (laughs) (laughs) We can say for sure that Secrets the Sith knew will be part of it. Definitely. Yes. Good work. It is 100% Secrets the Sith knew. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this is not someone in Palpatine's camp on Exegol in the Unknown Regions. Stay tuned for more on the Unknown Regions in today's Jedi Temple. In his Sith eternal ranks, building his Sith fleet, fueling his dark Sith vision, Beaumont doesn't know what Palpatine did. So that's not enough for us to go on. There is some additional cloning fodder, though. For starters, we learn here that Palpatine cloned Snoke as we see these, like, Selyse Baratheon-esque jars of little Snokies floating in their fluids. Can we have one Snoke to a tube? Why are we doubling up? Multiple Snokes in a single tube. <laughs> they did what, look are you cramped. Trying to save, are you trying to save money out here in Exegol? <laughs> One to a tube. This is ridiculous. They had to put all of the money into the giant Sith fleet that That's they were going to hide. <laughs> Palpatine says that he's been every voice that Kylo has ever heard. Has ever heard. And then we hear him as both Snoke and Vader. He's been manipulating Kylo and Rey and their paths to bring them to him. And this 
flesh puppet Snoke was just part of the way that he did so. We know from elsewhere in canon and legends that Palpatine was obsessed with cloning. Yes. Trying to clone other beings, including the nearly invincible Zillow Beast and cloning himself multiple times in the old EU. In Dark Empire, he's resurrected into his own clone body with his essence, almost like the shard of Voldemort's soul that attached itself to Harry, swishing from the reactor explosion into a new host. Palpatine's, quote, I've died before line to Kylo certainly seems to support the fact that his body was destroyed and then his spirit made its way into another host, which is now potentially rotting or unsuitable for other reasons. In the past EU, Palpatine was running into an issue where his clone bodies would burn out after a very short period of time. Clone bodies in Clone Wars and prequels age rapidly, and though that was by design, Boba, who was not accelerated, aged normally. So, clone son. But clones. <laughs> also, plenty of support for this being Palpatine's original body and not a clone body. When we and Kylo first see Palpatine and learn about the waiting Sith fleet and the promise of the final order, all of that aligns with Palpatine's contingency plan and expansion into the Unknown Regions, again, more of that later today, where he would be able to quietly build up this new regime. And again, when Rey comes face-to-face with her grandfather, he appears to be rotting in, in a decaying body, and his eyes are milky, glazed over, his fingers are gnarled and rotten, but then restore themselves when he sucks out some of Kylo and Rey's life force. So if it were a clone body, and we're going to return to the point Jason just made about the decaying clones in a second, but if it were, why would he need their life force? Why wouldn't he be able to just kind of keep claiming a new palpy wrapper, you know, bounce your essence, essence transfer, midichlorian transfer from body to body? Now, Maybe the answer is because essence transfer and midichlorian transfer is very fickle. And we remain close to convinced, I think, that baby Yoda will eventually connect to the larger plot in some way here. This seems increasingly, increasingly likely. However, let's recall Palpatine's pitch to Anakin about cheating death. Quote, a power only one is achieved, but if we work together, I know we can discover the secret. While the Sith practiced the rule of two, Palpatine himself believed in the rule of one, wanting no one, even his apprentice, to ever live beyond him. Or his son. He wanted to be Tough. eternal. Yeah. Palpatine's courtship of Anakin includes a line that we hear again in the film from Palps to Kylo, quote, The dark side of the fourth is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. <laughs> Cloning may not be normal to us, but in Star Wars, it's not something people would call unnatural or no. public sanctioned. An entire army of clones. Yes. I guess transferring your essence to a clone would be unnatural, but clones themselves, True. no. Perhaps she used some form of essence transfer, a Sith practice designed to mm-hmm. pour to force user's life essence into another body or object. Yep. Palpatine was highly adept at this technique, pouring his essence into clone bodies after dying. And we do have one bit of evidence from Dark Empire for how a clone body would have degraded so quickly. Palpatine's power was so massive Mm -hmm. that it caused his hosts to degenerate faster than they should have, leading to body hops. Maybe by the time Kylo Ray reached Exegol, he's just run out of bodies or lost his patience with this kind of existence. Again, we can only surmise what the truth is. If he was using clone bodies and then just ran out, I'm like, what are your two million Sith Eternal doing? Have them make you more. Come on. Shoddy operation on on Exegol. Sheath Palpatine who lured Anakin to the dark side with the legend of Darth Plagueis the Wise and the promise of conquering death, learning that secret. 
was obsessed with immortality, consumed as so many villains who've lost their soul and their humanity are. In that sense, him returning is actually an easy enough sell for us. That part of it tracks. Yeah. But again, just show us how he did it. You know, imagine if Voldemort had said in Goblet of Fire, I who have gone further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality, you know my goal to conquer death, and now I was tested and it appeared that one or more of my experiments had worked for I had not been killed, though the curse should have done it. But then imagine we never got the Horcrux reveal explanation after that kind of statement. Imagine, you know, us understanding which of Palpatine's experiments worked is crucial for accepting his return. We we already yeah. accept that he was engaging in such exploration. What worked? Which one? And it is crucial, not only for accepting his return, but for believing that he is really gone Yeah, this is now. important. Tell us why we should believe that Palpatine is dead now when he wasn't before. You know, we saw him disintegrate. Okay, but presumably he disintegrated in some fashion when his body blew up in a reactor shaft. Maybe he reformed his particles through the dark side of the force or transferred that essence to another host. Could he again? Do we have an explanation for why he couldn't again? That is absolutely crucial, especially considering this is a story that you know, can really lack stakes at times. Yes. C-3PO's memory wipe, we're going to get to this, was set up as as a crushing emotional moment in the trailer. Turned out to really not matter much. Chewie not actually being dead. Like, these are all things that kind of undercut the emotional impact of the story. And it'd be great to be like, wow, they sacrificed so much to finally win and beat this guy. Mm-hmm. And be able to say that with authority and know that it be true. Yes, totally. And are we sure that we even know where we landed on whether Sheev wanted to die? This is a great point. You know, whether or not he would inhabit Rey in some fashion after she struck him down or whether he was going to get the outcome that he had initially been seeking. You know, why? You mentioned this earlier, but why doesn't he stop shooting off the Force Lightning as Rey is using the double lightsabers? to rebound it on him. Like, Sheev, my guy, you are murdering yourself? Yes, just stop it. The second the lightning starts melting your face, like, legitimately, just stop shooting it. Stop. Yes. That's you doing it. (laughs) Stop. Maybe even after Ray and Ben aligned against him and rejected his initial plan for Ray to strike him down willingly, he still wanted this result, in which case we have to ask, did he get what he wanted? We don't think so. This is where we are right now. We don't think so. Like the intent had to matter. Yes. Right? You but have it was to ask still, the question, but... It was still confounding in the moment. You know, right after we watched this movie, you came to me and you were like, okay, so wait a second. His big plan was, Ray, you're going to strike me down and <laughs> then I'm going to live on forever. Right. And then she's like, ha no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to throw my lightsaber away to give it to Kylo. And then a minute later, she kills him. Yes. That was, <laughs> yes. So Palpatine so, told Ray, you want to kill me. That is right. what I want. Kill me and my spirit will pass into you as all the Sith live in me. You will be Empress. We will be one. So Ray did kill him. Now, our belief ultimately is that, as is so often the case when it comes to the dark side and the light side, the difference is one of intention, as you just said. Yeah. Ray didn't strike down Palpatine out of fear and out of hate like he wanted her to. And as we know from Anakin's fall and so many Jedi warnings over the course of the story, those are the emotions, the tendencies that lead to the dark side. She struck him down 
out of a desire to protect the people that she loves. It's like what Rose said to Finn at the end of Last Jedi. That's how we're going to win. Not fighting what we hate, saving what we love. That's what Rey did here, ultimately. You know, asking the thousands of Jedi who came before her to be with her, saying, be with me, you know, internalizing Luke's message, a thousand Jedi live in you now, absorbing their wisdom and their guidance, like the friends that she saw in the sky above Exegol had come to fight by her side, trying to keep her safe. That all acted like a shield to her, we think. You know, this... This interpretation is something I think we have to hold on to. It feels right. It's a way to process what happened here. And it also reminds us very much of one of our favorite passages from Deathly Hallows when Harry is able to pass by the Dementors and Sheev has real Dementor vibes here. Not with the aid of a spell, but just with the presence of love. You'll stay with me until the very end, said James. They won't be able to see you, asked Harry. We are part of you, said Sirius, invisible to anyone else. Harry looked at his mother. Stay close to me, he said quietly, and he set off. The Dementor's chill did not overcome him. He passed through it with his companions, and they acted like Patronuses to him. That's actually a really nice way to think about what happens here with Rey and her friends and the Jedi, and certainly much more fulfilling than wondering if all of that meant nothing and Palpatine will just come back after all. But ultimately, the film's lack of expository detail makes such a line of thinking possible and even necessary. There's also the theory, which I think is probably also somewhat true, is that it's ultimately because it is Sheev again shooting himself in the (laughs) face with his own force lighting. It's being reflected by Ray's lightsabers Mm -hmm. that it's ultimately his powers that kill him, not her hand striking him down. Thus, it's not all part of his plan. Right. Love to hinge nine movies onto semantics. That moment speaks to the film's heart and shortcomings being wrapped up as another way too. Ray, using both Luke and Leia's lightsabers to beat Palpatine, speaks to celebrating the symbols of the past and the nostalgia of the story over pushing what was established previously in the previous movie forward into a coherent whole. Mm -hmm. It does not make sense that everyone accepts this so easily. Quote, so, Poe says, Palpatine's been out there all this time pulling the strings? Always, Leia says, in the shadows from the very beginning. (laughs) She was famous for his patience, biding his time before initially bringing the Sith out into the open in the first place. That's an easy sell. Uh But the resistance not wondering how this happened is not. Like, the fact that Leia, one of the heroes of Endor, would not be like, how the fuck did he get off the the Death Star Uh 2? How did he get out of there? Who moved him there? Like, these are all important questions, you'd think. Yeah. Similarly, we have to wonder what exactly Luke has been looking for before Ray picked Uh up his trail. When Poe tells Lando they're looking for Exegol, he says, quote, of course you are. Only two were made. Ray, quote, a Sith Wayfinder. Luke Skywalker came here to find one. And Lando says, quote, I know. I was with him. Luke and I were tailing an old Jedi hunter, Ochi of Bastoon. He was carrying a clue that could lead to a Wayfinder. We followed his ship halfway across the galaxy. When we got to his ship, it was abandoned. No clue. No Wayfinder. Why was Luke looking for Ochi in the Wayfinder? Did he know that Palpatine had returned? <laughs> Did he tell Leia explaining her resigned response to the news here? Again, we want to be respectful of everyone's take on the movies. But to the Last Jedi critics who think that the movie harmed Luke's legacy, what would this do? Mm-hmm. Is it possible that Luke knew or suspected that the Sith had returned or never even left Uh and then didn't share the news with anyone? Troubling to consider. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's some real, gotta meditate on this shit. (laughs) I know. (gasps) Similarly, again, very pro-Luke, pro-Leia podcast, but we're just asking the questions. Didn't Luke and Leia have a responsibility to tell Rey who she was, which we learn in this film they knew? You know, recall Luke's own despair in Return of the Jedi after Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi had not told him about Vader. Why didn't you tell me, he asked Ben. Unfortunate that I know the truth, he said to Yoda. He believed fully that them withholding this from him was wrong, not justifiable. And now we're supposed to accept that he does the same. And I think there are plenty of ways where Luke has become much more similar to Yoda and Obi-Wan than he ever thought was possible. But this is not one of the ways in which I think it's easy to accept that that would have happened. What are you most afraid of? He asked Ray, And this is when she's back on Octo with him. Myself. Because you're a Palpatine, Leia knew it too. And then Ray says, she didn't tell me. She still trained me. Because she saw your spirit, Luke says, your heart. Ray, some things are stronger than blood. Confronting fear is the destiny of a Jedi, your destiny. Now, this, in many ways, is a lovely and essential idea. Your blood, your family name, do not determine who you are. But the movie is at war with itself in this respect. Eager here with a line like that to reject the paramountcy of blood while also ultimately in some of the choices that it makes, some of the most important choices in this movie and the saga, being totally beholden to that. The Ray parentage reveal is hugely disappointing, aside from the canon confirmation that Palpy does indeed fuck, which might be the easiest to accept reveal in the film. Yeah. This is a guy who kept a lake house on Naboo. What else was he doing there? Of course she fucked. He also had a Gungan fertility totem. I bet he did. On his yacht. This is a guy who fucked. Okay. More seriously, hearing Kylo tell Ray that she was a Palpatine felt like taking Ochi's dagger to our like our hearts. This erased one of the most miraculous gifts that, in our opinion, the yes. last year I gave us the reminder that anybody yes. can be special. Anyone can make a difference. Anyone can have a relationship with the Force. Ray learns that her parents are Villanelle and Palpy's son, and that they die to keep her safe and sheltered from Palpatine's. Reach. Every comment in the film about Ray's nature feels like a bolt of force lightning to that idea, even though she ultimately overcomes it. Also, like, steal from Harry much? <laughs> a lot of Harry in this movie, yeah. and not always in the best ways, unfortunately. But despite how appealing her being no one was, how beautifully that aligned with someone like Broom Boy and that, yeah. you know, elemental quintessential idea of anyone being able to find that magic within, there was, I think, one way that this could have worked, which would have been just tapping into the Shakespearean tragedy of the one thing that Ray is yearning for, that longing that has defined her life, the search for home, the search for family, the search for belonging, the search for answers, being the thing that when she finally gets those answers and sees what that looks like, she realizes is the very thing she's trying to fight against and destroy. You know, that there's a comp there. You mentioned Danny. There's a comp there to Danny in season eight of Thrones. This thing that not only could you have sold us on, but could have been like haunting and shattering and instead yeah. just feels feels unformed. And like it undermines one of the more 
inspiring messages of the series to date. Yeah. And instead of being a reveal that resonates thematically, it's essentially introduced as an explanation for how Rey was as powerful as she was. I hate this part of it. Which I hate this. Undercuts a lot of the magic of the first movie. That just also feels like really pandering to all the angry bros out there who were like, she's a Mary Sue. A hundred percent agree. Quote, you have his power, Kylo says to her. And it's so disappointing, so contrary to what we could have gotten into what Star Wars itself has always prized. At posted by Gaslight came through with a great <laughs> poll on Twitter, surfacing this nugget from Star Wars Women of the Galaxy. Quote, even beyond the trappings of the Star Wars saga, the First Order, the Resistance, the Force, Ray's story is inspiring, familiar and timeless. Just because you come from nothing doesn't mean you're not part of the story. You're not no one because anybody can save the galaxy. Anybody. Well, that was written by Amy Ratcliffe, who probably still believes it. The book was sanctioned by Lucasfilm in 2018. So the question should be asked, what changed? I don't know. Similarly, in a 2015 interview with Slash Film, J.J. Abrams said, quote, I really feel like the assumption that any character needs to have inherited a certain number of midichlorians or needs to be part of a bloodline, it's not that I don't believe that is part of the canon. I'm just saying that at 11 years old, that wasn't where my heart was. And so I respect and adhere to the canon, but I also say that the Force has always seemed to me to be more inclusive and stronger than that. So within four years, we went from that beautiful message to raise Palpatine's granddaughter why how leia tells ray in one of the more moving moments of the film which when they're hugging embracing as ray is about to set off and it's both a farewell from ray to leia and from all of us to carrie fisher's incredible mark on these films ray never be afraid of who you are but somewhere along the way here star wars grew afraid of who she was it's a great point Return reroll after word from our sponsors. Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com. And now back to binge mode. So much of the fan debate around this film and The Last Jedi previously hinges on the idea of what Star Wars is or was supposed to be. But one thing is irrefutable. Lucas believed that anyone could tap into the Force and intended it to function as such. In the StarWars.com oral history of The Phantom Menace, he emphasized the idea and the misunderstanding around it given the story's focus on what is in essence force using royal families. Quote, people have a tendency to confuse it. Everybody is the force. Everybody. You have the good side and you have the bad side. And as Yoda says, if you choose the bad side, it's easy because you don't have to do anything. Maybe kill a few people, cheat, lie, steal, lord it over everybody. But the good side is hard because you have to be compassionate. You have to give of yourself. Whereas the dark side is selfish. Fast forward to the end for a minute and Ray's decision after burying Luke and Leia's lightsabers in the sands of Tatooine to take the Skywalker name. Two quick side notes here, just not burying Leia's any place that has any direct meaning to her. Kind of strange, but okay. Yeah. And but why are we burying them in the first place? So that there's someone in another Star Wars movie can dig them up in three years. Also so they can say we killed the past two. 
but we did it respectfully. <laughs> if you're the last Jedi and you're going to be training the next generation of Jedi, don't you just want to have a couple of lightsabers around? What, like, why are we playing like some kind of weird treasure hunt with these? That's a fair question. I maybe we can ask the Tatooine elder who is sure. clearly checking on property values in the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the Lars moisture farm, seeing if the uh, the murders there had you know hurt the rates in any way. But yeah, there is a version of Ray taking on the Skywalker name that could have been spine tingling. You know, it's that idea that we always talk about the family you choose. Ray deciding to reject the Palpatine aspect of her history and craft an identity for herself attached to the people who she felt a closeness to and she felt a kinship with. Lean into that part of it. But the complication is that this fear of their own story and what these choices represent leads us to instead have this moment where when Luke and Leia, their force ghosts appear, no Ben, okay? It feels just like another move on the movie's part of just prioritizing that bold face name. You know, you've made a point a few times during the run of the pod that I think is worth revisiting here about how somewhere along the way, the Skywalker stopped being farm boys and started being royalty and needing to tether the conclusion of this story and whatever comes next to that name again, yes, it it is honoring yeah. something that we prize, but it also feels like saying we had to do that. We had to choose one of these names. I think that there's something else that's kind of indirectly bothers me about this, and that's, you know, with Luke's parentage reveal, that had been something that was gnawing at him. Mm-hmm. What was my father like? What was he doing? What was, you knew my father? You know, like all these things that was, all these questions he had whenever the subject of his father came up. He was, it was something that drove him and that gnawed at him. Ray was haunted by the identity of her parents and would they ever return? Would they ever come back? She didn't give a fuck who her grandfather was. And so it, it's weird to me that now she knows who her grandfather is and is like essentially the thing that had, been gnawing at her, these people that knew her before this great adventure started that had either abandoned her on this planet or or been taken away from her, that she, so strong was her pull towards her memory of them that she didn't want to leave Jakku mm-hmm. because she was afraid she'd miss them. And yes. now, because she finds out like her grandfather was Palpatine, that has been shunted away, that it doesn't work the same mm-hmm. because it's not something that was important to her who her grandfather was. And again, the people closest to her, Luke and Leia, know about it and don't care. They're fine with it. So why does this matter? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. You know, again, I think that's where the aspect of her saying Luke and Leia were the truest thing I I had, the closest thing I ever had to resembling family, and I want to call myself the same thing, is is lovely. Is lovely. Yeah. And I don't want to totally undercut that that was part of the intention. I think it definitely was. You know, she's literally looking at their images, but it becomes the weight of the Skywalker name over all those other things. And that's, I think, what you're identifying there. And the the same was true of the Palpatine name, you know. Take your mom's maiden name. You know, the one who took like a dagger in the guts for you. Yeah, Comer. Ray Comer. Ray Comer. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Ray Comer. That's great. And then one of the other things that happens in this sequence in the, the final moments is that Ray fires up her yellow lightsaber. This Mm. symbol of Rey forging her own path. I think this was one of the things that we both liked a lot in the movie, actually. This is the first yellow lightsaber that we've seen in the primary films. We've seen them 
Elsewhere in the story, though, they are very rare. The Jedi Temple Guards and Clone Wars have them. A couple other characters like Ventress, so acquired from the black market, a couple other examples. Yellow represents a balance between green and blue, the Jedi Sentinel school blending the skills of the Guardians blue and Constellar's green. And yellow saber wielders tend to be strong in combat and scholarship possessing great practical skills, inclined toward diplomacy, all of which sounds a lot like Ray. This sounds very fitting. And they're also often practiced at force immunity and resistance, which feels key for Ray, especially in light of that question of whether Palpatine could be out there lingering, you know, protect yourself against the incursion from someone else. But just broadly here, this really works for us because it felt right to see Ray bury a tether to the past, a meaningful one, but still a tether to the past, and forge her own path forward. You know, making your own lightsaber, much like the wand choosing the wizard, is a sacred ritual for a Jedi. So the questions of where she got her kyber crystal, you know, we the film does not answer them for us, but yeah. maybe she found a pure one and bonded with it, and it turned yellow, revealing that essence. Maybe she retrieved Kylo's and purified it. We do have an instance in the wider Star Wars world of a purified red crystal turning into a yellow plasma blade with Jaden Core's third saber. And I think we feel similarly about this run. On the one hand, it's a really lovely idea to think of Rey retrieving yeah. Kylo's saber and purifying his crystal for him and carrying that little piece of Ben with her. But also really energizing to think of her just starting new here and making this yes. fully for herself, you know, a testament to her own life and her own power. And, you know, as our buddy Dave Gonzalez noted in a piece he wrote on the lightsaber for Thrillist, if you look at the actual shaft of the blade, the pommel, it seems to be made from her staff. So already you have these symbols of various stages of her life, the old and the new, the past and the future, all in one. Really, really one of the highlights of the film. Speaking of lightsabers, yeah. I guess we're just never going to find out how Maz got Luke's <laughs> lightsaber that was hurled down the shaft on Bespin. Listen, a story for another time. And and apparently when? that time is not now, even though this is the conclusion of the Skywalker saga. I don't know. Uh, this is wild. That's, on, I guess, like in the grand scheme, a minor point, but just <laughs> infuriating. Another <laughs> highlight, of course, was Raylo, the yes. bond between Ray and Kylo, the heart of this trilogy. Yes. It's not always perfect in this film, but it was still the heartbeat. Every scene with them crackled with their chemistry and the force of their bond, a dyad in the force. Their force time connection remains one of the really cool innovations of this series and the way it built on the water transferring from mm -hmm. the last Jedi to now all of a sudden being able to snatch whole items and pass things back and forth was pretty cool. Yes. At the beginning, of course, Kylo is hidden anew beneath his mask, reforged by a, a chimpanzee armor for some reason. <laughs> what was what was that? The first so order just weird. says chimp armors. <laughs> so <What>? strange. <laughs> so strange. <laughs> the cracks glow red like the dark side. Yeah. A helpful visual signifier also so that we can pick Kylo out amongst his Knights of Ren. Yeah, that's some Mace Windu purple lightsaber shit. Also a, a highly symbolic walking back yes. of the last shot. I literally stitching back a thing that happened in The Last Jedi after Kylo smashed his helmet. Pretty weird. Weird. By the end of this movie, Kylo no longer draped in red and black masks, these totems to Vader. He's in that athleisure that we mentioned, and he's running to help Rey. The blue light dancing across his face, this color that we associate with Jedi and goodness. And when we see him 
and Rey wield Luke and Leia's lightsabers together in unison, it is electrifying, just as it is when their Force time connection pays off so magnificently. And Ben, who is reborn and redeemed in this moment, arriving to assist Rey, but surrounded by his Knights of Ren, who we're going to talk about more in the eight, looks at her through their connection, and there's just complete and total understanding passing between them in the span of one glance. That is a great moment. And when she drops in the lightsaber, it is awesome. It's just awesome. The throne room sequence in The Last Jedi was one of our favorites, and you get like a little tiny, tiny taste of it here. And another thing I wanted to call out in this sequence is... Ben's arrival on Exegol and the way when he dives down and jumps and hits, you know, hits against the rock and the chain, the way he just says, ow, you know, that seems like it's a small comedic moment, but it it actually is really important because contrasted to the way that he responded in the forest of Starkiller base in The Force Awakens when he's beating on his blaster wound in his abdomen, you know, trying to, as you noted in The Force Awakens pod we did, channel that pain, turn that into fuel for him. And here his reaction is just so wholly human. And it is really wonderful to behold. That's when you realize that it's Ben Solo, not Kylo Ren. His path to that redemption was not easy, of course. As we talked about with Anakin in our Return of the Jedi pod, and we'll continue to discuss for both of these characters later on in our Darth Vader character study, it's worth asking if people do things that Anakin and Kylo did can be redeemed. But remember the key ingredient, remorse. And Ben Solo possesses that in some amount. (laughs) I put abundance in the dock and Jason changed it. (laughs) I need more from my mass murderers. I know. I do need more. I know. Stay tuned for some good supporting evidence that he's a a gentle soul. (laughs) I mean, it's fine. Before he gives into it, he is early in the film still on the warpath in which he was concluded in The Last Jedi angry and desperate to make people pay. He slaughters legions on Mustafar in pursuit of the Wayfinder, then intends to destroy Palpatine, not knowing that his good friend Fox Hux is a spy <laughs> or a legion general pride is in league with Sidious because of the relationship they've had mm-hmm. from the old empire. He's recruiting Rey because he wants her to join the dark side, but all the while he knows there's something deeper that defines their bond. I, th- I did think that part of it was really interesting. The yeah. fact that here he is, the nominal leader of this intensely evil fascist super organization and kind of the only person that he can confide in at all is Ray. And I think that, you know, back to the point that their relationship is the, is the engine that drives the film. It's that contrast and that dichotomy that makes these films interesting. Totally agree. They are the absolute highlight of it. And in this film, he puts a name on that connection. They are, he tells Ray and us, a force dyad. This comes after he's revealed Ray's family name to her. He explains it thusly. My mother was the daughter of Vader. Your father was the son of the emperor. What Palpatine doesn't know is we're a dyad in the force, Ray. Two that are one. Later on in the movie, as Ben and Ray are standing before Palpatine on Exegol, and he goes full Dementor and is sucking out their life force, Palpatine says, the life force of your bond, a dyad in the force, a power like life itself, unseen for generations. And now, yeah. the power of two restores the one true emperor. So a couple of things here. We had wondered immediately upon hearing this whether 
this has something to do with the idea that Palpatine created Anakin, literally connecting all of these bloodlines. Mm -hmm. Why else would Kylo make the Vader-Palpatine comment? But Lucasfilm's Matt Martin denied that. Vader number 25, the canon on which the Palpy theory rests, actually confirmed this about Anakin's parentage, stating that it was not the intention. Mm -hmm. Writer of the comic Charles Sewell, who we'll be talking about more in a moment for another comic, joined the Twitter conversation saying, quote, the dark side is not a reliable narrator, which is honestly, this is pretty huge. That's massive. Yeah. So, okay, the Palpy, Anakin, Kylo, Ray, Force, Uniting Theory is pretty strongly debunked, uh -huh. which gets us to the other interpretations of the new dyad canon and a lament. In general, as anyone who listens to this pod knows, we want our stories to have rules uh -huh. or else it's just a free-for-all. Yes. We need fantasy universes to provide answers and make sense and then hold themselves accountable when things go against that. Uh -huh. But sometimes you don't need an answer. Recall a quote we shared during our Phantom Menace podcast from Damon Lindelof, who in 2009, while discussing Lost End, said, I feel like you have to be very careful about entering into midichlorian territory. I grew up on Star Wars. I've seen the Star Wars movies hundreds of times. I can cite them chapter and verse. And never once did anyone ever say to me, or did it occur to me to say, what is the force exactly? And that is something I agree with. I think just to push back slightly, specifically re-lost, I think when you put specific mysteries out there, what are the numbers, for mm -hmm. example, and then don't answer them. Yes. That is a different thing. That is. So back to the dyad. Yes. The dyad feels different than the numbers because yes. the dyad does feel like midichlorian territory where, yes. you know, the Ray-Kylo bond is sort of the only thing in the trilogy or one of the only things in the trilogy that just doesn't require an explanation. You feel it. You accept it because it is so strong and, and all-consuming. You know, we don't need this storytelling alchemy to convert it from soft sci-fi to hard sci-fi. It just worked. Without question, yeah. it worked. Their bond is the soul of these films. So if you're gonna put lore against it, then you absolutely have to land it. And at the end of the movie, we don't know what a dyad is or how it works. I mean, we know literally what a dyad is, but we don't know exactly the mythology of a forced dyad. It comes into this story, seemingly, to serve the function of explaining how they are able to regenerate Palpatine, how they have that power. A character, again, whose presence in the film is also not explained. <laughs> Ray tells Finn, quote, people keep telling me they know me. I'm afraid no one does. But one person does, Ben. His parentage, of course, is the inverse of Ray's. She wants or wanted to know who she is. He wants to stay tethered to Vader, but push away the weight of his lineage and the shame he feels for Luke doubting him. When you feel shame, what do you do? You try to make another person feel it too. But much of Kylo's early relationship with Rey in this film comes from pushing her to embrace the dark. And the most striking instance comes on Pasana, where Rey is pursuing the Wayfinder. Quick aside about the Wayfinder and Ochi and the dagger and all that stuff. Plenty <laughs> of stories feature MacGuffins. And I'm fine with, as a person who loves the Avengers movies and sure. loves Star Wars in general. It's part of it. I'm fine with MacGuffins. But these were just Absolutely crazy MacGuffins <laughs> that made little sense. <laughs> the Wayfinder's parcel tongue Horcrux vibes were very neat, but beyond that, they raised more questions than answers. The supposition here, or at least the implicit demand is, please don't think about these things. A hundred percent. For instance, who put the Wayfinders there? 
and why, right? <laughs> Did Palpatine need maps for himself? <laughs> the Sith Eternal, like why? And programming explanation aside, why is it the C-3PO can't speak Sith? The Sith were thought to have died out. <laughs> right, exactly. And we're still programming droids to not translate <laughs> Sith? <gasps> okay, how is the Wayfinder in Kylo's ship that Ray stole when the ship he had been traveling in after procuring the Wayfinder blew up on Pasana? He just kept it in the glove box of his backup ship. Why are you leaving it on your ship in the first place? How did Ray and company find Ochi's blade in about 12 seconds? That's amazing. Thanks to the assist of the, of the devil stare, quicksand, when it was literally right below Luke's path when he was hanging out with Lando and he couldn't sense it? Is it's like it a, a force detection? He has no idea yeah. it's there. <laughs> what if Ray hadn't fallen through there? Relatedly, what if Ray had been standing literally any place else? She just happens to be standing at the exact same spot that makes the angle just right that she can hold the blade up. This and, is ludicrous. And see where the wayfinder is? Again, standing in the same spot is absurd enough, but the Death Star wreckage is on water. It would move. Again, forget the whole the Death Star wreckage is on water. That's crazy is enough. <laughs> but like, so you built this whole secret object code in order to find a thing that's hid literally in the last place that this person was known to be. <laughs> it's crazy. In it's whole- in his th- it's in his fucking throne room. It's not even in some <laughs> random part of You're the right. Death Star. I know. It's amazing. It's in next to the room where he was sitting all the time. But again, like on the one hand, and there's did just, you leave it there? There's just this video game quest aspect to all of this, yes. which is like fine. People love video games. Video games are fun. But to that point specifically, ending up in the throne room, it's just, again, you just can't escape the shadow of those symbols of the past. That yeah. just carried more weight than sensible story choices. So back to Ray and Kylo and their showdown on Pisana, yeah. which is undeniably one of the highlights of the film. A, a genuinely stunning and thrilling moment when after Ray slices Kylo's ship with this tremendous bit of... Force gymnastics and causes his crash, and Finn tells Ray that Chewie's on the departing transport ship. Having been apprehended, she reaches out with her hand and, with the force, pulls the transport back, preventing it from leaving the atmosphere. And it is an astonishing display of power, not something that we have seen before in the films, though we saw Starkiller use the move in the 2008 game, The Force Unleashed. So when Kylo emerges, and sees what Rey is doing. He's awed. He's awed by this power, and he pushes her, engaging in that game of force tug of war, pushing the transport with his power in his hand as she's trying to pull it down. And as we watch, you know, you can hear every line from Star Wars past about anger and fear playing across your minds, and it is unbelievably effective. And then we see Rey, full of rage, unleash this titanic bolt of force lightning into the sky, and the transport fries and explodes, and Rey screams, Chewie! And it is so bold and so horrifying, this insight into what Rey's power can mean and what horror she could unleash if she gave into the dark. And it's also, of course, this tragic loss of a beloved character in Chewie. Yeah. And then within minutes, it is just undercut spectacularly and crushingly when we realize that Chewie was on this second transport that made it out intact. So an actual line in this movie is there was a second transport. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
So how Ray and Finn and Poe didn't see that transport leave? Again, they're on a barren desert planet get, at this point. This is what, how it would have had to work. Finn sees Chewie get loaded yes. onto the transport. Yes. He turns around. Yes. The transport takes off. Yes. Another transport lands exactly well, in the place the where The transports Finn... were next to each other. You can see them both arrive and you can see them both on the sand. But ha- that makes it weirder that they wouldn't have seen one leave. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> and then, like, we're talking about Force-sensitive characters. How does Ray not sense that Chewie's life force is still yeah. on the transport? Especially given... The way that she soon realizes he's alive, which is gazing up at Kylo's destroyer from Kajimi. Chewie, yeah. she can feel him. So we don't have answers for those questions. But what we can say is that the choice is emblematic of some of the film's true flaws. You know, we, of course, do not want Chewie to die. We love Chewie. No. And the fact this that he— This is not a Chewie should have been dead No, podcast. of course not. And, and the fact that he's alive means we get to see him. Receive his medal, fucking finally. Wail in agony when he learns that Leia has died, which is one of the most gutting moments in the film. Just That was awful. Genuinely, remarkably sad. But losing Chewie and losing him in that way because of what Ray did would have been a courageous storytelling choice. It would have introduced stakes and consequence to a movie that so often lacks them. Chewie's resurrection is not a gift in that sense. Yes. It's not a reprieve. It's a curse of the movie's lack of resolve and not the only one. Kylo is mortally wounded and lives. Rey is actually killed and then resurrected. Han, whose death was one of the most consequential in Star Wars history and is not a Force user, mm-hmm. comes back for closure in a way that we've never seen another character come back before in a main series film. More on all those in a moment. 3PO's memory is erased in a moment that was played up in the trailers as being this really important emotional yeah. turn mm-hmm. and then restored 20 minutes later when R2's like, yo, I got, I got you, you, bro. Yeah. On and on the list goes. The most heart-wrenching decision in the film other than Ben Solo's death was undeniably Leia's and that resulted from something that tragically occurred in real life. Yes. In a conversation with the Masters, George Lucas says, quote, If you've got a hero, what you want to do is make him vulnerable. You want to say, we could kill this guy. So invest in his struggle because it's not one of those movies where he's just going to walk away. And when I said there is another, it's basically signaled to the audience that I could kill Luke. I killed Obi-Wan. It makes it more exciting for the movie. Now, George Lucas is no George R. R. Martin (laughs) in terms of killing his characters. But I think that's an important idea and an important technique for creating stories that hit home emotionally. No doubt. Speaking of the Death Star, Kylo and Rey's duel on the wreckage is really heart-pounding cinema. Very grand. It's also one of the stronger incorporations in the movie of the old and the new. You know, Kylo and Rey traversing this titanic symbol of past generations in their story and in our world alike. And the entire duel is mesmerizing. Ray stabbing Kylo and the events that immediately precede that and follow that are among the best things in the film. We cut that off before Han comes back. First, Mm -hmm. we see Leia call out her son using every ounce of her remaining strength to reach him and say his name. Ben is the last word that she speaks. And that's important in so many ways for both Leia and Ben. First, Leia. We learn elsewhere in the film that Leia trained with Luke to be a Jedi, but laid down her lightsaber after sensing her son's death at the end of her Jedi path. 
Ultimately, Ben's death does quickly follow Leia's, and their bodies actually vanish in the same instant. Another example, perhaps, of fulfilling the fate you seek to avoid. In Leia's case, though, it came from love and a desire to protect. Though we heard Leia say in The Last Jedi that her son was gone, and we know that her words in The Force Awakens ultimately reflect her heart, she never lost hope. We can see Leia train in Legends canon, but this is our first real taste in the primary films of Leia really engaging with the Force beyond communicating with Luke and Empire and floating through space in The Last Jedi. She's an active hand here, not a passenger. It's immensely important to see Leia serve as Rey's master, leading the training course with the old Luke and Ben favorite remote droid. Mm -hmm. It's also immensely important to know that Leia never gave up on her son. Her forgiveness is ours as well. And recall in The Last Jedi that Kylo couldn't pull the trigger on killing his mother. And recall as well that in the Age of Resistance Supreme Leader Snoke comic, Snoke takes Kylo to Dagobah to face his demons in his own cave of evil. But inside, Kylo can't kill the specter of his parents, destroys the cave instead so that Snoke won't know. He does kill the vision of Luke inside, but let's put a pin in that for now. And Ben can hear his mother's voice here on the Death Star wreckage, and it pulls him out of the dark back into himself, and he drops his lightsaber. And Ray grabs it, activates it, and with that red, angry blade, she stabs Kylo through the gut. And it is a shocking moment. A great one. Much like the exploding transport, it's an insight into what Ray could do, could become if she succumbed to the seduction of the dark side. But as soon as Ray thrusts the blade and Leia's life force flickers out, Ray feels that loss and returns through that veil of anger to herself and to the light. Ray crouches and uses the same power that we saw her use on the creature beneath the Pasana Sands when she healed the wounded beast and explained to BB-8 that she also gave a bit of her life force to do it. She puts her hand over Kylo and transfers some of her life force into him, healing him and saving him. And in one of the most wrenching moments in the film, she says, quote, I did want to take your hand, Ben's hand. In a less cruel world, these two would have been able to spend their lives together. Here, the realities of war pull Rey away, leaving Kylo to reflect on his choices. Before we get to the next step of this reflection, quick word on force healing. While we've discussed force healing before on this pod and it's prevalent in legends, it's only canonical inclusion in this form, not counting moments like Ben waking Luke, presumably using the same power, but specifically seeing mortal wounds stitched back together came in Star Wars Uprising and The Mandalorian before we saw Rey, Mm. and eventually Ben, stay tuned, use this power in this fashion. We saw it two days prior in Chapter 7 of The Mandalorian when Mando, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, Baby Yoda force-healed Grief Carter's poisonous arm gash. I did. We could deduce after the act that LBY's previously attempted to use this power on Mando's arm in Chapter Mm 2. Could this we have to wonder, be how the Mandalorian will ultimately connect to the Skywalker saga. Do Moff Gideon, Dr. Pershing, and the Imperial Remnant want Baby Yoda and his miraculous gifts back in 9 ABY because they're working to restore Palpatine's original body or his failing clone shells? It certainly seems possible. In Legends, we see something called Dark Transfer, which Cade Skywalker uses to return others from mortal peril. And crucially, Cade believes that he has to tap into the dark to use this power, but another character, Jedi Sazen, thinks that it's possible to 
heal in this way from a position of light. And it's easy to apply this to Rise of Skywalker if this is, in fact, what Palpatine has been doing or is in pursuit of. His method, dark and greedy. Ray and ultimately Ben's selfless and whole. Which does beg the question, could Anakin, given his canonical force power, have, in fact, healed Padme? You know, would the above note on intention apply here with the fact that Anakin wanted to save her not purely out of love, though of course he did love her, but also to control, to corrupt nature in some way to best nature have changed the outcome. In George Lucas on the Force 2010, which is a really cool little feature that showcases George Lucas discussing how the Force works with the writer's room on the Clone Wars and reading from his own personal notes, he said that the Sith are always unhappy. The Sith are never content. Quote, That's the problem with Anakin, ultimately, Lucas said. You're allowed to love people, but you're not allowed to possess them. To get back to Kylo, who's learning the same lessons that Anakin did, though he dies in this movie, he's reborn. His spirit and humanity are resurrected, and that culminates on Exegol. But these moments on the Death Star wreckage are the pushback in the light. Leia's death, Rey's tenderness, Han's return. Ben's three anchors to humanity ultimately pulling him back to redemption. So let's talk about that Han moment for a second. Yes. It's hard to complain about getting more Han Solo. Of course. Love Han. And the mirrored lines, I know what I need to do, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. And the gestures, Han cupping Ben's cheek in his hands Mm -hmm. are, are, are moving. Yes. Han's present, though, is a distraction confoundingly catering to fans' base instincts we reject the fan service label. I, yes. It's not useful. Making fans happy and engaged is good. But this really felt like base pandering on a certain level. Was there anyone who was clamoring to see Han Solo in this movie? Like, was it necessary for the story? Did we need that? Literally did not occur of, to me as a possibility. Yeah. And at the expense of one of the great tragedies in the story, because while we root for Kylo in his redemption, he actually shouldn't be let off the hook for what he did to Han. Not at all, because that undercuts the power of the redemption. He should carry that regret with him. Yes. A talisman on his way to becoming a better person. It's like Stannis in in A Clash of Kings. A good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. Each should have its own reward. It's also one of those things where the immediate reaction upon seeing a beloved character back for reasons unknown Mm -hmm. should not be how is this possible? Mm-hmm. What is happening? Like that was, and which was my initial reaction. Like I should right. be, that should hit me in, in the feelings. Yeah, totally. I shouldn't be trying to figure out how this is happening. Yeah, you shouldn't have to pause and wonder, wait, did Leia send this right. vision, the specter of Han to Ben? Is this is, all happening in his head? Is, like, the, is that how, what she did with his yeah, final like, act? I mean, he obviously calls Han a memory and that's ultimately where we seem to land, but it is confounding. And, you know, after Kylo's moment with his father's memory, instead of using the lightsaber to kill as he did last time that they had this exchange, he tosses it into the waves, this little seed of darkness lost in the Death Star's wake, fitting place for it to be deposited. And Kylo did choose, with the help of his mother and his father, and of course Rey, that path. And in the same conversation with the Clone Wars writers, George Lucas said, quote, the only way to overcome the dark side is through discipline. The dark side is pleasure, biological and temporary and easy to achieve. When we were prepping the pod, Jason said in response to that, sounds great. 
The light side is joy, everlasting and difficult to achieve, a great challenge. So at last, Kylo embraced that challenge here to become Ben again. And speaking of Ben, we learned a great deal about him in the comic The Rise of Kylo Ren number one, which was released the same week as the film. And crucially, among the reveals, it seems that Kylo did not directly kill his fellow students at Luke's temple school. He did not choose to. In the comic, we see that there's this other force, this gathering storm cloud in the distance that unleashes that fatal blow. And Ben tried even, it appeared, to run in to see if he could help, but was repelled. And he was horrified by the damage done. And when three other students who had been off-world returned, he fought them, but he didn't want to harm them. And he kind of fronts this toughness when really we see he's full of horror and despair. And crucially, they think that he needs help, not abandonment. And While he is certainly not presented as a flawless character, he is fallible, he has made mistakes, the creator of that comic ultimately feels that it is important to convey this aspect of Ben Solo's character. Writer Charles Sewell to StarWars.com said, quote, I think the key to writing Ben Solo is to write him as a lost teenager who's deeply in touch with emotions that teenagers often feel. He feels like no one understands him, no one sees him the way he actually is. He's utterly alone, and there's no one else out there in the universe. Adding, quote, everyone's telling you that you're X, but what if you're Y? What feels correct to you? Are you Obi-Wan Kenobi, or maybe you're something else? All you need to be is whoever you are, and no one's letting you do that, and maybe shouldn't you go someplace where you can be who you are? There's an undeniable similarity here between Ben and Ray. Though Ben made all the wrong choices, including in the comic, going to Snoke, instead of his parents, and then declaring his intentions to find the Knights of Ren. But we see here that Ben Solo was a tortured kid, not a bloodthirsty murderer. Quote, it's a story about family and expectations and the fact that Ben Solo is part of a vast network of galaxy-changing individuals, from his mom and his dad to his uncle to his adopted uncle Lando, to his namesake Ben Kenobi, to his grandfather Darth Vader. Within one step of him are arguably some of the most important people in the galaxy. So his story is their story, and you can't tell Ben Solo's story without knowing all the other ones backwards and forwards. And now at the end of the rise, we know Ben's heart as well. When Ben finds Ray on Exegol, where he will unite with her to battle evil, ultimately giving his life to save her. This act of self-sacrifice is the ultimate healing act for his own soul, the ultimate indication that he has abandoned the dark for the light. Dark side users crave the unnatural, crave that eternal tether to life. But here, Ben has succumbed to the inevitability of joining the cosmic force, of moving on, so that in this case, Ray could live. And the moment that he drags his body over to her to cradle her in his lap and send his life force into her is so tender and so moving. And their their kiss is this quick and small little delight, but almost in a way like a cruel one, given what it denies them and us. You know, we're never going to see them enjoy that together again. But the smile on Ben's face in that one pure moment of fulfillment and happiness and awareness that he can see his own goodness in somebody else's eyes, that specifically being the thing that he felt he was never going to have again after he looked up at Luke hovering over him, that right there is a gift. We're left with some questions, of course. Where was his Force ghost? Why can't Star Wars love stories simply end happily? This one's weighing on me. We don't know the answers to that. But Palpy said, quote, long have I waited and now your coming together is your undoing. It wasn't. It's what saved the galaxy. I wish they had actually gotten to come together. Yes. Hello. <laughs> we haven't had enough 
enough sex jokes on this pod. I'm just saying it's been heavy. I know. Let's quickly chat about some of the other characters before we move on to our other section. So Finn, Force Sensitivity representation in Star Wars. Good movie for Finn. Very, very interesting and fun movie for Finn. Let's start with the biggest reveal. It is implied in this movie and seemingly confirmed outside the film that Finn (laughs) is Force sensitive. Yes. Okay. This has been a popular theory since Finn's introduction in The Force Awakens. And we hear him put voice to this in Rise of Skywalker. He speaks of the Force with such reverence when he tells Janna, who, like Finn and her fellow warriors on Kef Beer, escaped from First Order enslavement, he tells her that the Force guided his escape. An instinct, he says, a feeling. A feeling, she replies. The Force, he says. The Force brought me here, brought me to Ray M. Poe. You say that like you're sure it's real. It's real. I wasn't sure then, but I am now. Later, when Ray falls in her battle with Palpatine, Finn can sense it. Yes. He calls out her name. And we see Finn, over the course of this movie, mature in, in many ways. He pushes Poe. He encourages Ray without any kind of judgment. Yes. He becomes a general and a true leader, really in a lot of ways earning the respect and praise that Rose showed him in The Last mm-hmm. Jedi. He doesn't stop annihilating stormtroopers, even though <laughs> one of his functions in the story is to remind us that there are people too, but Tough. whatever. Tough. <laughs> he does speak throughout the film of feelings, which is the language of the Force. Yes. He also speaks a little concerningly in the language of destiny as though the force is what determines his fate rather than the choices he makes. Perhaps if the film had spent more time on this journey, we could have delved into that more. Overall, the choice to make Finn Force-sensitive is actually the kind of thing that we want to celebrate. That's great. It is of a piece, really, with the idea of Broom Boy and that idea that anyone can tap into the Force. It's not just reserved for the special few, which we know, again, it isn't. You know, we couldn't have had Order 66 at the scale we did, if only a few families had ever been Jedi, and remember what George Lucas has said that we talked about earlier about anybody being able to tap into the Force. In making of Star Wars Return of the Jedi, we were treated to this exchange between Lucas and screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan and director Richard Markant. Kasdan said the Force was available to anyone who could hook into it, and Lucas said, yes, everyone can do it. Kasdan replied, not just the Jedi, Lucas. It's just the Jedi who take the time to do it. Markant, they used it as a technique. Lucas, like yoga. If you want to take the time to do it, you can do it. But the ones that really want to do it are the ones who are into that kind of thing. Also, like karate. And this is a powerful, it kind of sounds silly, but it is a powerful, deeply meaningful idea, as we discussed above when we were talking about Ray's origin story with Finn here. Instead of leaning fully into the idea that a boy who grew up thinking he was this cog in an evil machine and then constantly having to contend with the relationship between his fear and his courage, you know, remember that all-time brand net exchange that we like to return to. Can a man still be yes. brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave. Finn encapsulates Incredible that line. so well. We spend the bulk of the film instead on what it means for Ray to have been born into Palpatine's bloodline instead of focusing more on this idea with Finn and, and, and how you can overcome what somebody else thinks is supposed to be your nature. This apparently is what Finn wanted to tell Ray. by the way. This is so weird. So weird. I find this a little infuriating, especially because it was brought up so many times within the film. Yeah. It's like, you're just not going to pay that off. According to a tweet from Kalia Wren, who attended the Academy screening, J.J. Abrams told those who asked that Finn wanted to tell Ray he was force sensitive. We do not have confirmation from Abrams himself, so maintain some degree of skepticism here. But beyond that, John Boyega tweeted, quote, no, Finn wasn't going to say I love you before sinking. And that tweet in conjunction with the Abrams report, seems to lend credence to the idea. 
So why are we getting indications of major plot points coming from outside the film? Can this story stand on its own? Star Wars is an interconnected universe, but there's an uncommon amount of confusion about the content of Rise's plot. Also, while we should probably take Boyega's word for it that Finn wasn't going to profess his love, that does change the reading of the film in a pretty major way. I, for one, thought that's exactly what he was going to say. Me too. Considering the romance between them or unrequited romance between them was a major driver of the first film. Yes, and that felt like a a really rich text to dive into because on the one hand, if he does love her, and again, it sure seems like he does, show us him grappling with not being able to get the relationship that he wants. Show us Ray realizing that she can't give somebody she cares about what he wants. You know, and on the other hand, it felt felt very true to life to see a character harboring those feelings for someone and just never getting to say them out loud, never getting to see them come to fruition. Everyone has been there. We can all relate to that. Speaking of feelings, though, the Finn-Poe romance back in a big way in this film. Their chemistry remains riveting as ever. Yep. And while the Finn-Poe-Ray trio really shines, that bond is really solidified. You can almost feel that Luke-Han-Leia energy. Sadly, but unsurprisingly, the Finn-Poe shippers were let down. That brings us uh, to something else that's important to discuss. Overall, Rise struggles Mightily, yes. With matters of representation. Earlier this month in an interview with Variety, Abrams nixed the Poe Finn dreams, but said, quote, in the case of the LGBT community, it was important to me that people who go to see this movie feel that they're being represented in the film. Now, for all the hullabaloo about this moment that was preceding the release of this movie, the actual moment itself is like blink and you'll miss it. Totally. The LGBT representation wound up coming during the post-victory celebration at the Resistance base, when for literally mere seconds, seconds, we see Commander Daisy kiss another woman. And the thing about it, too, is it's not even explicit that it's a romantic kiss. Like, it looks like a New Year's Eve party when mm-hmm. people are just, like, embracing each other. That didn't look like necessarily a relationship or a romantic kiss to me. Yeah, And so it really feels like a thrown-in, literally the least that you could do. Totally. Totally. Like, what is the least amount that you could do so you could check that off and say, well, we threw we in some it. LGBTQ. Right. We did it and we talked about it a Representation. Lot. How about, like, literally half a second of a kiss? In addition, Rose, an Asian woman who played a prominent role in The Last Jedi and whose yes. portrayer, Kelly Marie Tran, was bullied and harassed online, eventually feeling the need to delete her Instagram posts and write an op-ed in The New York Times about the harassment, is essentially benched. In this film, in in what feels like, in the context of all the other choices, Mm -hmm. part of this need to correct for The Last Jedi. Mm -hmm. And it honestly just feels super shitty that that is the thing that happened. The excuse for keeping her at the base while everyone else goes off in the adventures is what? She has to stay and do homework? Rose, last chance, ask her. The general asked me to study specs of old destroyers so we can stop the fleet if you find it. Okay. (laughs) I just don't understand, like, why this even happened. And then then why she wouldn't play more of a role at the base also. It was just confusing. And it's another example of where comments that had preceded the film just start now completely incongruous with the final results. This is a tough one to swallow. Yeah, J.J. Abrams, you know, had gushed about Kelly Marie Tran and inheriting this character and this actor as part of his cast 
at Star Wars Celebration, he said, quote, I was grateful to Ryan Johnson for so many things that he did, but the greatest for me was casting Kelly Marie. It is really hard to reconcile that comment with Rose's presence or lack thereof in the film. Really hard. It feels of a piece with, again, the other corrections that they made from The Last Jedi. It feels like a tacit acknowledgement that they were going to try and make this movie not that one. Mm -hmm. What's more, while it's an unbridled delight to have Lando in this film, Billy D chewing scenery like it is an aged steak. (laughs) And while the Finn Janna bond is is immediate and potent and Janna instantly established herself as a fierce, compassionate soul, it's not hard to notice that all the prominent black characters are suddenly hanging out with each other in the film rather than having relationships with other people, other characters within the story. Yeah. That felt very pointed and very awkward to me. Yes. Quickly, let's chat about Poe and Zori. Poe has taken on a more central presence in each of the three sequel trilogy films. Blink or go to the bathroom at the wrong 45-second stretch as Sean Fantasy did and you will miss Poe's entire Spice Running origin story. That's how quick it was. But ultimately, that didn't really make a difference. It was a throwaway line. What mattered to Poe's arc was his growth as a purveyor of hope, his role as a bridge from Leia to the next generation of Resistance leadership. And one of the quick but quietly impactful moments in the movie comes on Kef Beer when Poe and Finn are arguing about how to best help Ray and fight the fight. And Poe, who's overwhelmed and had been short with Ray earlier in the film, says he's not Leia. And Finn's reply is, that's for damn sure. And it, you feel it like a punch to the yeah. chest. Poe, like all our new sequel trilogy characters, is in the shadow of a giant. Yes. When he sits by Leia's bedside back at the base after her death, he expresses his doubts to her. But Poe's journey really well encapsulated in The Last Jedi, is ultimately to learn to embrace the hope that he once needed others to explain to him, just as he parodied Holdo's, quote, we are the spark that will light the fire that will burn the First Order down line in Mm -hmm. TLJ. He's able ultimately to internalize Leia's courage here in Rise. It's one of the film's stronger moments of melding the past and the present and the future. Leia's legacy looms over Poe, True, but ultimately he takes his strength from her example and is able to find his own way to inspire, naming Finn General, reminding his fighter pilots in the heat of battle that as long as they're alive, there is a chance. And delivering one of the film's stronger messages, quote, good people will fight if we lead them. Yes. It's impactful precisely because Poe does not believe blindly. His faith has been tested time and again, and he always finds his way through. Though Poe has devoted his life to the resistance, telling Zori he can't leave until the war is finished, we see that hope come in another form. With Zori, uh-huh. the always incomparable Carrie Russell, who just is fantastic. She's a legend. I've been a fan for so long. <laughs> Love Carrie Russell. Incredible hair. Just an amazing talent. Who, for reasons that will literally never make sense to us, is hidden beneath a helmet and a mask for nearly the entire movie. Okay. But in the one moment when Zori lowers her blast shield and shows Poe and us her eyes, we're reminded of the power of love and attraction and desire and of fighting when you have someone to fight for, not just simply people to fight against. Yes, that is a lovely little moment when he sees her eyes and looks at her. Let's talk about the droids. BB-8, DO, R2, 3PO, etc., If you harm little baby Yoda, we will have words for you as we have established on this podcast. And if you come and listen closely, you hear me? 
volume up. If you ever yeah. drop a fucking tree on BB-8 again, <laughs> we will have more than words. More than words, as usual. BB was crushing it when he was out there, you know, activating a stormtrooper blinding yellow pink canister on Pisana, helping Finn and Janna destroy the command ship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How he got off the command ship when we never see him again in that sequence. We can't tell you. What a movie. But the droid arcs, as always, represent the larger story choices. And in that sense, we we do have to take a moment to consider what the prominence of C-3PO in this film means. You know, we love 3PO. Isaac doesn't, but we do. Not always kind, but good dude. Important to the story. And yet, putting him in such a central position in this movie at the expense of more screen time for BB-8. Weirdly, by the way, BB-8 is a J.J. Abrams invention. He he should want to feature him. But the reliance on 3PO really reeks of this need to elevate the past over the future and even the present. You know, we, we can't actually forget. That's the lesson of the 3PO arc because remembering the past, remembering what Star Wars came before is paramount. And in many ways it should be, but not at the expense of what's now and what's next. You know, as Jason's noted a few times, even the 3PO memory wipe choice really lacked the follow-through that we were anticipating in the way that the trailer positioned this taking one last look sir at my friend's line as this potentially like emotional apex in the film centering on shared history and sacrifice. And instead, the whole memory wipe arc broadly plays as comic relief. And like, comic relief is fine. People like to laugh. That's great. We like to laugh. We've laughed at many 3PO moments. But once again, when they come at the expense of real stakes or consequence, that's the issue. So 3PO losing his memory and then getting it back from R2 mere minutes later, then what was all that for? 3PO turning into Darth 3PO for the dagger reveal. You know, Dio being bashful and... we can sense this trauma in his past and then finding a way to bond, like, that's really meaningful and winds up rescuing some of the dagger-centric plot. But because the droid moments land so well when they land, you know, R2 rocking in agony as he realizes that Leia has died, you know, reinforcing that, these droids have to watch person after person who they've grown attached to fade away as they linger on. 3PO saying to R2, in the event that I do not return, I want you to know that you've been a real friend, R2, my best friend. Dio learning to trust new friends. BB-8 standing beside Rey on Tatooine, that lovely final image of the film. The binary sunsets on Tatooine in the shape of BB-8. This complete and perfect symmetry and harmony between the beginning and end of the film. Those are so impactful and so forceful and so strong. And we're grateful for them and just wish that we had more of the moments like that that reinforce the power of a lasting bond in this story. Yes. Jason. Yes. All world surrender or die. Wow. The final order begins. But before it does, please gather the Padawan learners. Head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know about the unknown regions. Go beyond the Outer Rim, through the Galactic Barrier, a dangerous and almost unbreachable maze of space storms, black holes, magnetic bursts, supernovas, giant space creatures, and who the hell knows what else. (laughs) And you will reach the largely unmapped Unknown Regions. It's a place of mystery, of secret planets, barely seen civilizations where ancient traditions and new threats took root in isolation before spreading into the galaxy at large. 
the Waterworld Octo, Luke's hiding place in the site of the first Jedi Temple, repository of the original Jedi texts is there. Mm-hmm. So is Ilum, where for generations, Padawan learners undertook the rite of passage known as the Gathering and harvested their kyber crystals. After the defeats at Endor and Jakku, Imperial remnants fled to the unknown regions to gather their strength, becoming the First Order. There they built their super weapons, Starkiller Base. Mm-hmm. It's where Scylla, the homeworld of the secretive and isolated Chiss Ascendancy, can be found. And as we know, after watching The Rise of Skywalker, the Unknown Regions is also where the Sith planet Exegol, Octo's evil twin, can be found. <laughs> the Unknown Regions is easy to confuse with wild space. So here's the difference real quick. Simply, wild space is the general name for the vast and completely unmapped expanse of extragalactic space beyond the Outer Rim. The unknown regions, by contrast, are mapped. Hmm. It's just that, as we saw with the Sith Wayfinders, the maps are very, very rare or a tightly guarded secret. So let's talk about these maps. During our Force Awakens podcast, we talked about Emperor Palpatine's contingency plan, which called for the destruction of the remaining Imperial forces, along with their New Republic foes on the desert planet of Jakku. The planet figured into his plans in other ways, which we only lightly touched on in that pod, even before his reign as emperor. Chief Palpatine was eager to continue to expand his power and influence beyond the reaches of the known galaxy. During his time as Supreme Chancellor, he oversaw the secret construction of observatories throughout the galaxy. Not shady at all. (laughs) Not at all. These were aimed beyond the Outer Rim, each looking at a particular area and each with a specific purpose. One of these was located on Jakku. It appeared as a simple bunker, though it was ringed by hidden defenses. The Jakku Observatory contained a borehole which led to the planet's core. Talked about that in the Force Awakens pod. Gallius Rax intended to destroy the planet by dropping Sith artifacts, including a Sith mask and a holocron, down the hole, thus destabilizing the planet. The observatory contained these artifacts, and it also contained ancient computers which projected a -a one-of-a-kind navigational map of the unknown regions. Many people before Palpatine had been interested in unlocking the secrets of the unknown regions, but the explorers and the probes who were sent into the galactic barrier were mainly destroyed or their ships returned like ghosts without crews. Communications from the unknown regions were fragmentary or unintelligible or whole, but consisting of mad and incoherent babbling. Palpatine, however, had an ace in the hole, or rather a chiss in the hole, (laughs) Admiral Thrawn. The brilliant blue-skinned alien from Scylla had previously served in the fleet of the Chiss Ascendancy, a power in the unknown regions. As a native of those parts, Thrawn's knowledge was vital to the Mm -hmm. Emperor's Unknown Regions project. Quote, Palpatine only kept that one around because of what he knew of traversing those deadly interstices. Galius Rax, who ran the Empire after Palpatine's supposed demise, thinks to himself in Chuck Wendig's Empire's End Aftermath. Over the years, the computers digested Thrawn's data, combining it with the data from the many probes the Empire shot into space to test its experimental navigational routes into the Unknown Regions. Sometime before Endor, the computers in the observatory finished their work from Aftermath again. Quote, the emperor was convinced that something waited for him out there, some origin of the force, some dark presence formed of malevolent substance. He said he could feel the waves of it radiating out now that the way was clear. The emperor called it a signal, conveniently one that only he could hear. (laughs) Even his greatest enforcer, Vader, seemed oblivious to it. 
In those waning days of the empire, Palpatine, according to Rax, became obsessed with whatever lay beyond. Now, after Rise of Skywalker, we can glean that this was likely Exegol, the hidden world of the Sith. Somehow, after the destruction of the Deuce, Palpatine made his way through the galactic barrier into the unknown regions and to Exegol. Now, here again, the observatories might provide a clue how. As we noted, the Emperor built numerous observatories, though we only know of two, Jakku and one on the planet Pilio. As Galius Rax understood it, each observatory came with a copy of the Emperor's beloved pleasure yacht, the mm. Imperialis. <laughs> it is unknown if the uh, Gungan fertility totem was also on every copy of the yacht. That said, <laughs> this is how Admiral Ray Sloan escaped Jakku, along with Brendel and Armitage Hux and the child soldiers who would become the First Order stormtroopers. If the Emperor could make it to another of his secret complexes, his chariot was waiting mm-hmm. and would take him directly to the unknown regions and presumably Exegol. There's also the strange matter of the Emperor's flagship, the Eclipse. By the time of the Battle of Jakku, it was thought that the ship had been destroyed by the rebel fleet. However, when Admiral Sloan and the other passengers on the Imperialis copy make it through the Galactic Barrier after an arduous, months-long droid captain journey, they discover the Eclipse there waiting for them, carrying, we assume, other hardliners technicians, soldiers, pilots, engineers, and so on. It's unlikely that the Emperor would be on this ship as none of the First Order's eventual leaders knew that Palpatine was alive. But that said, Executor-class dreadnoughts were huge, essentially flying cities with crews likely in the tens of thousands, if not much more. The First Order dreadnought taken down by the Resistance in The Last Jedi had a crew of over 200,000, for instance. (laughs) Perhaps the Emperor was smuggled on board and hidden away in some secret room, by loyalists? Who knows? Stash sheave in your refresher. Honestly, who knows? What about the Sith planet's polar opposite, the Jedi world of Octo? How is that reached? The Pilio Observatory was introduced as the setting for a solo mission released in November 2017 in Star Wars Battlefront Two. In that mission, set in the months after Return of the Jedi, Luke Skywalker, heeding a disturbance in the Force, heads to the planet Pilio, where he discovers the observatory. Just as on Jakku, the Emperor had secreted away certain artifacts on Pilio, and in the inner sanctum of the observatory, Luke finds Palpatine's compass. Is this how Luke discovered Octo? This is technically unconfirmed, though it is heavily implied. Mm-hmm. In a December 2017 article by Peter Scaretta on Slash Film, he alleges that a scene from The Last Jedi shooting script featured the compass, and the article also mentions a source who said that the compass indeed was how Luke found Octo. The compass can be seen in Luke's hut in The Last Jedi, and it can also be seen next to Ben Solo's bed in the flashback scene mm-hmm. when uh, Luke, quote-unquote, attacks Ben Solo. Keeps the compass right by his uh, red Sith Kyber crystal necklace. Weird. Yep. Luke Skywalker, weird guy. The Unknown Regions, actually kind of known. Fascinating stuff. It turns out. Fascinating stuff. <gasps> Mal? Yeah. I'm quite certain I would remember if I had a best friend. No, that's rude. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember I have nuggets. So let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. Lightning Round Sally, you go first. Number one. One of the most effective moments in The Rise of Skywalker comes when Rey, looking up into the night sky from the dusty, filthy floor of Palpatine's Sith Fortress on Exegol, calls to the legions of Jedi who came before her, asking them to be with her. And quite 
a few key figures from Star Wars lore answer. We hear both Ewan McGregor and Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan. Frank Hello. Oz is Yoda. Hayden Christensen's Anakin. Good good work for my dude Hayden Christensen here getting his check. Mark Hamill's oh, Luke Skywalker. Ever heard of him? Liam Neeson's Qui-Gon Jinn. Samuel L. Jackson's Mace Windu. Freddie Prince Jr.'s Kanan. Dope. I love it. Olivia Dabo's Luminara. Mm. Jennifer Hale's Ayla Secura. Angelique Perrin's Adi Gallia. And perhaps most meaningfully to fans who've waited years for this character's inclusion in the primary films, Ashley Eckstein's Ahsoka Tano. Incredible. That said, while it's thrilling to finally get Ahsoka in the Skywalker saga films, the inclusion of Anakin's former Padawan of Clone Wars and Rebels fame does seem to tragically confirm that by the time of Rise of Skywalker, Ahsoka had died. Not heard? Ezra. Good news for fans awaiting further word from Mr. Bridger. It's alive! Yep. Number two. But the cameo list doesn't stop there, as the Rise of Skywalker total is as massive as the Sith fleet. Beyond the voices Ray hears on Exegol, we also heard James Earl Jones as Vader and Andy Serkis as Snoke. Other cameos include Sean Ewan, Kate Hallowell's shared wife, Jodie Comer, as Ray's mom for five seconds. <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda as both a stealth songwriter and a resistance fighter. John Williams is the bartender. Yes. I called this out in the moment. It was great. So good. As bartender Oma Tress, an anagram of Maestro. Amazing. Shirley Henderson, a.k.a. Moaning Myrtle, oh! as Babu Freak. I love it. <laughs> and J.J. Abrams as Dio and Chris Terrio as Aftab Akbar, Admiral Akbar's. Must say, quite <laughs> delicious son. Although I, you got to, not as aged. The meat isn't as aged. I just, think you want your seafood fresh. That's eh, a little gamey. Something about the tenderness of that aged meat. And while this one's not (laughs) confirmed, much of the internet seems to think that two stormtroopers, Ray Mind Tricks on Kylo's Destroyer, were definitely positioned in a notably comedic and prominent Mm -hmm. fashion, are Ed Sheeran and Harry Styles. Incredible. Ed Sheeran definitely file under Aren't You a Little Short to Be a Stormtrooper. (laughs) Dennis Lawson also returned as Wedge. Wedge! While Warwick Davis... Back in that torture suit as Wicked the Ewok. Shouts to Wicked. Yeah. Number three. How about all the planets we see? We open, as we mentioned earlier, and as you may have deduced from watching the film, on Mustafar as Kylo's pursuit of the Wayfinder takes him to the planet where Anakin fell and later kept his fortress as Darth Vader. You will never convince us that Kylo would go there, get the Wayfinder, and not explore the dark side locust, but... We'll save that for another day. We are, of course, introduced on the big screen to Exegol, Palpatine's foul Sith home base, to the Sinta Glacier colony from which Poe, Finn, Chewie, R2, and Claude, great look for our guy Claude here, retrieve information (laughs) from the First Order spy, Fox Hux, via an intermediary. All the places that Poe briefly nearly kills everyone on while lightspeed skipping, the megafonicasm of the typhonic nebula, the mirror spires of Evexia, and the crystal chaos of Cardavite. Not all technically planets, but still new places. Mm. Pasana, of course, the desert planet that's home to the Akiaki and the Festival of Ancestors. And that sweet little scene where Ray looks out at the younglings, the children learning. What More of that, please. Kajimi, where Zori and the Spice Runners make camp until a Sith fleet destroyer blows up the planet. 
Ajahn Kloss, where the Resistance makes its base and Ray runs her training mm. course, and of course the site of Leia's death, and Kefbir, the ocean moon of the Endor system where the Death Star wreckage, Wayfinder, Janna, and her fellow escaped stormtroopers and Kylo's redemption all await. We also return to some familiar sites, including Octo, where Rey receives Leia's lightsaber and Luke's wisdom, and Luke raises his X-Wing to bookend his arc in that sense. And in the closing battle sequence, when we realize that the final order has fallen across the galaxy, we glimpse Star Destroyers falling on multiple other sites, including Bespin, Endor, and Jakku. So dope. And of course... Ray's journey concludes, for now at least, on Tatooine, where she buries Luke and Leia's sabers in front of Lars' home. That's a lot of places. My goodness. Woo! Number four. The Endgame-esque Resistance fleet arrival is an energizing moment in the film. And if you think you recognize some vessels riding alongside the Millennium Falcon in that collection, you're probably right. Most notably, and anticipated since a glimpse in the trailer, the ghost! Hell yeah. From Star Wars Rebels! Beck does. Where's my dude Chopper? Some of the other highlights include a glimpse of the Tantive Four, Leia's old consulship from A New Hope, the Irvana from Han's smuggling run in The Force Awakens, the Crucible, a former Jedi ship turned Honda reclamation project, possibly the Shadowcaster from the bounty hunting exploits on Rebels, the Outrider, a smuggling ship added into the New Hope special edition, possibly the Colossus from Star Wars Resistance, and more, including X-Wings, U-Wings, various frigates, destroyers, and bombers, and even a droid control ship. Sorry, Mando. Oh, tough. Number five, the film did not deliver the seemingly promised clarity on the Knights of Ren, but thankfully the new comic, Star Wars, The Rise of Kylo Ren, number one, began to delve into the mysterious cadre's history. In this first issue, we see Ren, a prior leader of the group whose face is covered by a scarred mask and whose badly burned torso is on full display. As writer Charles Sewell told StarWars.com, quote, I wanted him to read like a charming Darth Vader, a Vader who is charismatic and who is appealing. That's why Ren's skin is burned and he sort of looks the way that he does. He's embracing the seductiveness and the damage that the dark side does. Darth Vader, as impressive and imposing and terrifying as he is, is remote and cold and distant because he has the suit surrounding him, whereas Ren is in hiding behind it. Fascinating. Ren recruits we see through violent means and refers to the dark side as touching the shadow. All members, we learn, have force sensitivity, but interestingly, Ren rejects the idea that the group follow him. You follow this, he tells an ill-fated recruit, the Ren. And he's talking about, we see his red lightsaber. And the way he speaks about the saber helps to clarify something else about the film, Rise of Skywalker, why after Kylo's turn, the members of the Knights of Ren, his Knights of Ren, turn against him rather than remaining aligned. They're not loyal to any one person, even him, we see here in the comic. They're loyal to an idea. Quote, the Ren doesn't stop to worry about what it's burning or the right or wrong of it or the goals it might achieve. The Ren just is. It lives and it consumes and it doesn't apologize. It is its nature and nothing else. After the tragedy at Luke's Jedi Temple School when Ben Solo flees to Snoke, who is wearing a weird hat and living in a garden. Very strange, but dope. He indicates where he thinks he'll find his next home with the Knights of Ren. And issue two promises to pan back in time based on a tease and show us how Ben was first introduced to the group. Stay tuned. Number six. Our immediate Rise of Skywalker discussion included a debate over whether the ever-potent 
Lando Calrissian was hitting on Jana, but mercifully a reveal that EW's James Hibbard dug up seems to dispel that. According to Hibbard, information in the Rise of Skywalker Visual Dictionary companion book indicates that Jana could be Lando's daughter from the companion. Quote, when peace reigned, Lando attempted to start a family, but tragedy struck as it always does in Star Wars, folks, and his infant daughter vanished. It was only later that it became clear who the culprits behind the abduction were, the First Order, building their fighting forces, but also specifically striking out at the old Alliance leadership. Given that we know Janna was taken from her home as a child and converted into a First Order stormtrooper, and given the, quote, well, let's find out nature of the where are you from exchange between Lando and Janna, there's certainly some convincing evidence. Number seven, if you're feeling after hearing all of this that you really need to consume a lot of other Star Wars canon in order to be able to fully stitch together The Rise of Skywalker, here is perhaps the most damning example. Palpatine's transmission, the mysterious broadcast referenced in the opening crawl, never appears in the film, but it does appear in full in Fortnite. Whether this makes Fortnite Star Wars canon or it's just a particularly 2019 version of cross-brand marketing, can't really say. But in case you weren't fortunate enough to attend Fortnite's Star Wars event on Saturday, December 14th, so again, before the movie came out, before people realized the significance of this, where the message was shared, here's the gist. At last, Palpy says, the work of generations is complete. The great error is corrected. The day of victory is at hand. The day of revenge. The day of the Sith. Number eight, we mentioned John Williams a few months ago for his cameo, but his true mark on the film is, of course, the brilliant score. As we mentioned at length in our Sounds of Star Wars episode, his ability to weave in variations of leitmotif for maximum effect is on masterful display here. A couple of highlights that our producer Isaac noted when Ray spots Darth Vader's melted helmet in Kylo Ren's chambers, a brass instrument, probably a two, plays the Imperial March melody while the rest of the orchestra plays an ascending progression of completely dissonant harmonies. It's jarring and upsetting, sends a chill down your spine. Another moment is the variation on Leia's theme at her funeral. It starts off in a minor key in line with the sadness of the scene, then transition to a major briefly, perhaps signaling the hope that can arise from her passing, before settling back into the minor as Poe, Finn, and Chewie find out about her death. John Williams, we don't know how good he is at bartending, but he's an absolute genius at film scoring. I bet he's great at bartending, too, honestly. Yeah. We're a podcast in the force, Jason. Yes. Two that are one. <laughs> Just like today's winner. Every episode, we're going to honor the character or characters who rally the troops, advance the cause, and today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is... Relo. While we didn't get to see Rey and Kylo live happily ever after, we did get to see them unite to fend off the dark side, save the galaxy, save each other, and their bond was the heart of this film and the trilogy as a whole. A sincere thrill. Yes, sincerely. While your mileage may vary on the dyad explanation itself, it does speak to that force-deep connection that they share. And when they tapped into that connection in this film, it was riveting, culminating in that knowing glance and that lightsaber swap for the ages. While Ben's act do not erase Kylo's, he pushed through the dark side's temptations and eased toward the light, as painful as it was, and ultimately sacrificed himself by force-healing Rey, passing his life force to her so that she could live. After he and Rey kiss, he smiles for the first time in the films. For just a second, we could see Han in his face, and more importantly, his own joy. And Rey pushed through her fear and her anger, realizing that the love in her heart for Ben, for her friends, for her parents— 
could be the source of her strength, not of her weakness. And she forged her own lightsaber and took a name that she would feel proud to bear, set out to begin anew. The Jedi live in her now. All right, friends. Confronting fear is the destiny of a podcast. As Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, keep telling us. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder and continue to explore the galaxy. And that you'll join us again next time for our Rise of Skywalker, Ask the Underscore. No pod on Christmas. We'll be back at the end of the week with that. Send us your questions. Until then, remember, only this podcast tells. Hey, Mike. Hey, I just want to talk about Exegol today and Palpatine's ritual. I was at the stadium last weekend. First of all, let me just say this. It took me forever. It was like, I went on StubHub. I got the tickets. They were like 500 credits. I don't even know how much that is. I went out there. There's no maps out to the place. It takes forever to get out there, Mike. Let me tell you something. I'm sitting out there in this huge stadium. My seats were terrible. But I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be exciting because uh, Palpy's back. He lured Ray there. She's going to kill him, and then he's going to live forever. And and I'm waiting for it to happen. And then uh, her lightsaber disappears, and then all of a sudden uh, he's doing a lightning thing, Mike. And then uh, the lightning kills him, and I thought, oh, this is it. This is going to happen now. Was that part of it? And then the whole stadium comes apart. I can't even get my money back, Mike. I don't know how to talk about it. Uh, I'll take my hands off the air. Thank you.